Hey, welcome to Writer's Blockbusters, the show where we treat the final edit of a movie like the script. I'm one of your hosts, Bob Rose, and my Twitter and Instagram is at ThundergruntBob. And now Jimmy is going to introduce himself. <laughs> I am Jimmy George. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, and my Twitter handle is, if it's still around when this comes out, <laughs> is uh, at Jimmy R. George. And now hey, Jamie's going to introduce him. Hey, <laughs> hey, it's time for me. I see the green light flashing <laughs> my face. I am Jamie Nash. I am a screenwriter. Hire me for your next project. Um, I'm also the writer of Save the Cat Writes for TV and the brand new Save the Cat uh, Beat Sheet Workbook. Now available at Amazon. Get that was smoother. Yeah. yeah, much smoother than last time. Um, yep. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about a, a movie, a, a classic film that is now getting a Disney Plus reboot or sequel, whatever you want to, whatever parlance terms you want to use for that. Ooh. I don't know what they use anymore. Yeah, I, I don't like using reboot because it sounds like they're starting over, yeah. but right. uh, we're going to talk about Willow from 1988. And before we get into all of our outline topics... We're going to go around and say our relationship with the movie, like we always do. So let's start with let's start with Jamie. I feel like that's going to be the most interesting one out of the three of us. Yeah. Yeah. It's this movie is weird for me. I so let's start off this way. This will be the the twist. I used to have a poster of Willow on my wall uh for many years, the poster of the movie. Um but I'm not sure that I love Willow and especially the rewatch uh, kind of showed me why I haven't revisited it over the years. I was a big D&D kid. Okay. So I was huge into D&D. Um, around the time Willow came out, I was probably around 16 years old. I started playing D&D when I was about eight or nine in the 80s. So uh, I was anything D&D I saw and I saw multiple times. So uh, some of my favorites were, I love Sword and the Sorcerer. That was like one of my favorites. Albert Pond, um, RIP. Yes, yes. I actually, yeah. I actually teach with um, the princess from that movie. Her name's Kathleen Beller. Uh, and I teach at Micah with her. We co-teach wow. a class. Very cool. Um, and, and I'm constantly bringing it up and she's kind of, she barely remembers it. Yeah, I mean, she remembers filming it, but she did, she kind of. <laughs> I was going to say, that's, you know, that's sad. Yeah. It's oh. like, I mean, not that I'd say she's embarrassed by it because she's not, but you know what I mean? It's, it's like, a beloved it's, movie. It's another job she did. And when I bring up how much I like it, I think it kind of makes her roll her eyes. Um, so uh, Conan the Barbarian, I mean, I saw a tour the fighting eagle and you're the hunter from the future in the theater multiple times beastmaster Be so beastmaster was my favorite of the bunch like of all of those beastmaster was the one i liked the most um and with willow willow was kind of the pg version like i wanted to see beastmaster in some ways when I rewatch Willow, like the opening scene with the baby and stuff like that, I was starting to think of Beastmaster. And Beastmaster's got the bones and the creatures and all that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I was more Beastmaster than Willow at the time. However, I was also a huge Star Wars guy. You know, so George Lucas did Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark, my favorite movie. So when I heard he was taking on basically Lord of the Rings, there couldn't be a more... Um, you know, huge movie for me. So I, I think the funny thing about Willow, it was almost like my first experience with Phantom Menace. 
Um, you know, Phantom Pass came along. <laughs> and when, when I saw it, I probably didn't love it as much as I wanted to love it. So I was a little numb walking out of the theater, like trying to like it, but kind of on weird ground. And I think Willow was a little bit like that, but I actually liked Willow more than when I came out of Phantom Menace. There was a part of me that was a little angry about it or something where, and, and in retrospect, there are things I like about Phantom Menace a lot, but, um, but Willow, uh, there were things I really did like, and I liked seeing this kind of movie presented with a big budget and stuff like that. Cause it was, you know, again, it was what I was into. Um, however, I never rewatched it over the years. And, and honestly, I kind of forgot a lot of it. I remember the beginning and I remember the end and the middle, I kind of forgot. And when I rewatched it this time, I kind of saw why. And we'll talk about that a little bit. I don't hate it. I think there's a lot to love with it. I think the characters, the casting, um, the the music, there's all kinds of the, the tone of it. There's a lot of things I really love about it. And like I said, I liked it enough that I kept that poster on my wall proudly as an adult, young adult uh, teenager for, for a few years. Um, so anyway, that's my long complicated. If you still have it, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, it was probably on. It was probably on my wall to the time I moved out of the house, uh, but I, I do not have it anymore. Uh, Jimmy, you want to go? Yeah, I'll go. Um, so this was this re this rewatch, and I watched it twice for the show. Um, was probably the first time I've watched this, like Jamie said, for him since the eighties, and um, I kind of forgot, like. Watching this unlocked so many memories in a good way for me. And then I saw so many influences in my own work that I didn't realize were there. Like, for instance, and I know it's a trope, but like I wrote a I co-wrote a film and produced a film called Call Girl of Cthulhu. And, you know, it's about a cult searching for a woman with the mark of Cthulhu on her. She's the chosen, you know bride of the alien god and they even there's even a repetition of the main character trying to learn a chant that's gonna you know be able to close the portal to keep cthulhu out of our realm and i was like oh my god like those are both in willow (laughs) like like if you had told me willow was an influence on call girl of cthulhu that i you know wrote when I was 30, 30 something, I, I wouldn't have told you that those were, you know, huge, like impactful <laughs> inspirations to something. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so just the so many of the visuals like are cemented in my brain. I did, didn't realize that. I was like, oh, man, I didn't realize that was from this movie. So um, I, I love the score. I love the performances. I love all the aesthetics um, that that sorceress battle in the in the finale is is really fantastic. It, it really um, like it's the thing I remember most about it. Like you said, Jamie, I I kind of like could have quoted the beginning and the end of this movie to you without rewatching it, but the middle not so much. Um, and uh, yeah, so I I love everything about this movie except for the script. <laughs> but that being said we're really going to talk about mostly the positives and what you can learn as a fantasy writer from this script. If you're writing fantasies, um, because I think it does a lot of things. Like I think it's simplicity is it's, is it's strength. And I think there's a lot of instructive writing lessons that you can learn as a, 
as an aspiring fantasy writer from Willow, what Willow, I believe, gets right uh, and why it why it stands the test of time. So, yeah. So I don't have like a great, you know, affinity for this movie, but I do. I do love it. And uh, and yeah, it was really fun to revisit it. Cool. Um, I guess I like I, I'm going to be the outlier because <laughs> <laughs> unlike both of you, I have never stopped watching this movie. <laughs> um, no matter what negative things we say about this movie or anything about the script, I don't care. I, I will love it <laughs> as much and forever. I have always been obsessed with this movie. I was going to say, uh, if you guys remember back in the day when we did some Star Wars episodes, I admitted I had come to Star Wars later in life than most people my age. Um, and because of that, I think one of the reasons I'm so obsessed with this movie is because I think Mad Mardigan was really my Han Solo, mm -hmm. like that persona of him. Mm -hmm. I have a poster in my childhood bedroom that stands there to this day, much like Jamie, maybe of just Mad Mardigan. Like it is literally on my closet door as we awesome. speak. Um, I doubt my, maybe my mom checks it out every now and then, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, like I've never stopped watching this movie. It's maybe my one, like maybe my second favorite film score of all time. Ooh, um, so good. Right. Like James Horner, James Horner. Yeah. It's, I would say it's his best film score. Um, it's, you know, close to my favorite Ron Howard movie. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, and I acknowledge all those problems. I feel a little bit like the TMNT episode mm -hmm. <laughs> where, yeah. where me and Jimmy's unabashed love, you know, <laughs> it was like. Clashes with Jamie going, I was well, like no. 20 years old when I saw this. <laughs> right. No, but it's like saying, like, look, something to love something truly doesn't mean it's perfect. I, I, still, haven't so, I still haven't sold that issue to a teenage, <laughs> a teenage Is it in your garage? Do you still in my garage. Still in the same box. <laughs> I actually have the Willow board game. We should do a raffle. If for, anyone uh... wants to buy that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm a huge Willow fan. Like, I, I, I won't. I don't want to gush for too long. I'm just saying. Like, I guess I'm the outlier on the episode because the, to me, this is. I've owned it on every format it's ever been owned. I put it on as a comfort movie. It is that to me. He's uh, Mad Martigan's my Han Solo before Han Solo came into my life. So maybe it's also my age. I don't know. But <laughs> I'm a little younger than both you guys. I don't know. So I'm the one that loves it, but I am totally ready to talk about any writing problems <laughs> with Glee. I don't you know? I don't think we have a lot of negatives on this list. I know. I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. My love cannot <laughs> my love is so strong it cannot be affected by mere criticism from anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so yes but i but i'm willing to approach it honestly that's all but you know that mad marty composer it's staying up even though i don't live there anymore but it's staying up um <laughs> is this a is this a prelude to our our super mario brothers episode coming up uh... oh yeah god that's that i would do it you know i would do it <laughs> i think we should but i like the anyway. idea of making jamie watch it i think well, that's what we really like you, you know making you jamie know, watch old movies <laughs> you know what's interesting my son my son who only watches movies and clips he started to make me watch uh super the super mario so welcome welcome to dino hatton scene is something i've watched many times over the last month so let's do it let's do it hell yeah yeah, then, then we'll, we'll just start doing all all uh, video game movies. That'll be a new thing. <laughs> My God. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, Willow, 
1988. Jamie, who wrote this shit? Who wrote this shit? Sponsored by. We need a good sponsor <laughs> for that. Um, so the story Cooper, by Scooper. Yeah, Kellogg. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the story by was George Lucas. This was an idea George Lucas apparently had even around or before. It's a little, I was trying to dig deeper because I was really curious as to when he came up with this. Um, if he, and I'm sure it's out there. Like, did he try to buy the rights at some yes. point to the, to Lord of the Rings? And I Th think that that's true. I think I remember yeah. that because I was around the, the time, you know, right before Star Wars where he tried to buy the rights, but he came up with, with this idea. He had been sitting on this idea. Um, it's funny. It was originally called, did you, did you hear what the original title of this was called? You say it. Munchkins. Mm. Bad, bad yeah. stuff. It sounds like a gremlins rip. <laughs> yeah. Munchkins. I mean, I mean, to think of the guy who couldn't get Lord of the Rings was going to call, make a movie called Munchkins that somehow, I don't know. Anyway. So, uh, so he, he had this, this idea around and I can never really believe George's historical accounts because they seem to shift and change based on what he's, the story he's telling. But apparently when he met uh, Warwick on the set of Return, Return of the Jedi, Revenge of the Jedi, whatever it was at the time when he met him, <laughs> um, he he said, hey, I have this fantasy thing I've been wanting to make. I want you to be in it. And then as more time went on, um, he, he this is something we heard about the Star Wars prequels as well. He did the, they didn't the technology wasn't there to make the movie during Revenge of the Jedi or something, or he couldn't have done it maybe in the 70s days or something. Um, something he always said for Phantom Menace. But when I watched this movie, I was like, most of those technologies were around by Empire Strikes Back days, right? I mean, th you, you know. know the, only, the only notable shift was the morphing technology, which is the, the, first, the first movie they did that on, yeah. Yeah, and I can't imagine the morphing was the thing. He was like, I gotta wait till they get morphing technology. <laughs> that one yeah. scene, yeah. I yeah. need, yeah. They would have just done it some other, some, you know, the American Werewolf like in London. Poof sort of, of smoke or, or something. Yeah, like they that. would have done yeah. something. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, so so apparently he waited till the technology, if you believe George's nonsense. And then he, here's the interesting thing. The guy he hired to write this movie, and, and this is something I sort of appreciate from George. And I think it's it's uh, instructive or for writers to hear. George tended to hire these guys. I almost get the feeling he was just friends with. You know what I mean? It was like people around. He didn't, you know, when you think of the person you'd go to to write the big Lord of the Rings movie, do you think the guy who wrote WKRP in Cincinnati, like that's what he was most known for, would be the guy? Well, what is it they always say, Jamie? It's like Hollywood is about the meetings. The movies are trivial. You want yes. those good meetings, right? So you want to hire your friends and funny people. So, yeah, I might hire the WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah. It, so his, his big credits were WKRP, which is a big thing, and SCTV. I mean, that's what he did. And he was the guy who ended SCTV's up SCTV's classic, man. Yeah. He was the guy who ended up writing Willow. Um, and that is weird. Yeah, it's weird. But but when you look at George, like even um, even Lawrence Kasdan, uh, when he when he hired him for Empire Strikes Back, how did he find him? He went to Spielberg and, and Spielberg was like, I got this guy working on Continental Divide, which I'm producing. He's pretty good. And it's like Continental Divide Raiders Empire Strikes Back. You know, it's like 
you know, <laughs> right. a Jim Belushi rom-com and, you know, so I, and, and uh, even George's original partners back on Star Wars, who are they, the Hayek's or whatever, mm-hmm. um, American Graffiti to Star Wars, you know, it's, it's, he just mm-hmm. kind of gets the writers he knows and people he trusts. And I think that is very instructive, like, at least in my career, like they'll hire me to write something. And I'm like, I'm the guy for that. And they're like, well, we know you'll, we know the kind of work you put in, you know, we know, we know how you think, we know you'll work with us. We know you're collaborative. That part is almost as important as what you write. Once you're, once you're in the mix, you know, once you get there, um, it's, the it's power just, of networking is what the, you say. The power of networking. Who knows where your career will go in some ways. But you can also argue, too, it's also what you're known for. Like in this case, maybe his credits for SCTV and WKRP, they brought something to Willow that might have been more fun than another writer who is steeped in fantasy. You I know? know, I don't know. I, I, I still think it's 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 super odd. It's but weird. It's weird. It's, it's weird. weird. <laughs> but I'm like, saying he wrote comedy so that like, I don't know. Like if you told me he wrote like um I don't know a kids comedy or something maybe I'd buy it for Willow but for WKRP in Cincinnati I don't know I don't, it's, <laughs> to this it's to this, very it's a leap it is a leap it is yeah yeah and then and then you get Richie Cunningham to direct it I don't know no I don't. Um, <laughs> so, so um maybe maybe George was just really into TV in the seventies or something and he just wanted that kind of thing or the early eighties um so. Here's the weird thing. I'm looking at the guy's IMDb, and he only has one episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. Did he write like the famous turkey episode or something? Possibly. Like, I wonder why he, he stands he, out. Uh, he also, I'm just realizing this now, wrote two episodes of the new show. Yes. So oh, they, wow. They actually, they actually got him to write two episodes. That's I, awesome. I saw in the in the uh, in an interview uh, that he was talking about the writers' room, and he. Uh, and this wasn't meant as a slight, but they were kind of reframing it this way. But he was saying that the new show is far more corporate than the days when Lucas was working. Lucas was definitely a guy that was like, you know, follow your bliss, do what you want. Don't be afraid. And the and, and now he's more afraid. You know, he's like, yeah, Disney's got to check this out. And he's constantly thinking of right how Disney's going to react. It makes so, sense. So anyway, that that's who wrote it. Um, and he wrote it apparently over between spring and fall of whatever year that he got hired. And he wrote, I think it said seven drafts. So seven drafts a lot in like a few months. So he must've been working. And I think he worked like George brought him to the ranch and he actually worked at Skywalker ranch with, with George on the screen. You know, Jamie, one of the reasons some of them might hire like a sitcom guy is just the actual turnaround of writing. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Like TV writing goes, goes, goes. Right. so here's the thing about George, and he gets knocked. He gets knocked a lot for stuff. He does like these movies you love. He is a writer, or he's a producer that writes. He likes to get down there and go through it page by page, uh, you know, sentence by sentence. He he's writing. So I think he tries to hire people who are good at collaborating with him, and it's almost like a mini writers' room he produces. You know, so maybe TV guys are better at that. Um, they're better at going through page by page. He did the same thing on on a couple of the uh, of the prequels. I think he brought in some writers. Like if you look at if you look at the credits for the prequels, I think one or two of them actually have other writers. And you're like, yeah, who I is think this? there were some playwrights. Yeah, who is this guy? Yeah. Like, why is he writing a Star Wars movie? But you know, he's they're not just the people delivering people. coffee that just walk past, and he's like, hey, come here. Yeah, it's, 
<laughs> it's not like George is. Yeah, it's it's not like George is like bring me the guy who wrote Last Starfighter or something. You know, he's not doing that. He's doing something else. So, um, so anyway, the box office for this movie. This movie wasn't a huge hit, but it wasn't a failure either. And I have a feeling it made a ton of money in home video. I think that's yeah. probably where it made its bones. But thirty-five million dollar budget. It definitely, well, probably the biggest budget for a fantasy film of that time. Like I don't think I can't think unless you count like. Wizard of Oz adjusted for inflation or something. Mm -hmm. um, $35 million. And it made worldwide $137.6 million. So it definitely, yeah. Even with in marketing, 1988, yeah. Even yeah. with marketing, that should be fine, yeah. Now, now here's the interesting thing. And th this is why this movie might be a little bit ahead of its time. Um, I think $80 million of that was was international. Oh, wow. Um, which is r rare for, for the 80s, right? You know, so... So it's like 60 million was domestic and then the rest was was pretty much international. So it was it was a bigger hit internationally than domestically. But that's probably still why we didn't get the Lord of the Rings right. trilogy. Right, it didn't make Star Wars money. They it were hoping Star for Wars. Star Wars money. Yep. And, but and, I mean it it, it even mm -hmm. though it ended there, I mean obviously, you know, writing aside, it accrued that fan base that allowed it to Part of it, part of its narrative was it was very hard to finance too. Yeah. Like, uh, and interestingly enough, like it wasn't a movie where Lucas uh, financed it himself. Which that's was what doing. I was about to ask you because that was like his style after yeah. Star Wars. Now, now the, when I saw the writer talking in interviews, he said he got paid initially by Lucas to write the script. So that like was initially. Pocket? Out of pocket, out of Lucas's pocket. Wow! But, but I mean, Lucas used to put up money for entire movies out of pocket at, at that time. So it's it's kind of surprising. At this point, he didn't just double down on his bet. So he was hedging his bets against fantasy, apparently too. Ooh, I mean, he didn't. So it's a he, real gamble. It was a real gamble. I, and when I say that with Lucas, I mean he really only financed his Star Wars movies himself. Right, right. Like he didn't finance Raiders and stuff like that. So. Well, I, I was like back then though, was fantasy considered like an odd genre to hedge your bets on? I actually don't. I'm too young to remember the absolutely the climate. It was okay. Absolutely, uh, up until Lord of the Rings, I'd say people uh, Hollywood generally looked at all fantasy as being failures because if you went through like the studio versions of them, I, I don't know how much Labyrinth made, but I don't think it was a huge hit. Does you that know? even count as the same though? It feels like. like not the same as this. They, they would. Know? They they rope it in. Was the Dark or, Crystal before this? The Dark Crystal. That uh, feels more akin. Yeah. And and that that was kind of a bust at the box office. It didn't make a ton of money. Never ending story. Um, never ending story. You know, I don't I don't know where that. I have a feeling that made its money back, but it didn't quite you know make enough to be. Yeah, there's, there's sequels. There's two sequels. Um, yeah. <laughs> Lady Lady Hawk, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. Um. What's what's the one with Tom Cruise? Uh, uh, Legend. 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 Ridley Scott's the Legend. And that might have been after this, actually. But that was also that was. not that was also not a huge not hit. a huge yeah. hit. So yeah. until Lord of the Rings, Conan the Barbarian was probably, yeah. but it wasn't a huge hit. It was just a. It was yeah. kind of like a I also double. feel like Conan, while it's the same sword and sorcery, it fits a different demographic. You it know? is. It so is. I think you're right. I feel the same. I think you're right. So, but so there really was no like everything was a failure up to like. Uh, so somebody might correct me. There might be one I'm missing, but uh, I think what I think that was the big thing is who's going to make Excalibur. a huge bet. <laughs> Ex Excalibur is a great movie, but I don't think it was a huge hit. Like all these movies are like solid 
singles or you know none of them are like blockbusters like they weren't making excalibur two three four and five um right nothing really launched a franchise or anything like that and because they cost so much money they really want the huge upswing mm-hmm. uh on the now beastmaster had a bunch but that was the low budget um version of these movies you know that was the kind of exploitation <laughs> horror movie director version of these movies like sword in the saucer and some of the other ones i liked as a kid right well with that talking about the genre and <laughs> and and the expectations at the box office let's talk about genre expectations yeah I, I put this on there because i feel like this is a good example of of how the mo- how a movie um can be simple but feel like strong and and like you know satisfy the audience because of it delivering those genre expectations um jamie do you do you feel like uh the you know us winding you up so you could tell the david goyer story that uh has inspired this talking point so many times yeah it's so funny because i i've been telling this story off of like some little piece of information i heard like 20 <laughs> years ago i really should look it up milking you know? the hell out of it yeah I should... yeah but it's relevant and it's it is, a great it talking point great, uh, great anecdote and i've heard other people like i went to the austin film festival this year and i think somebody had a very similar thing i i sat in on an adaptation uh uh panel and it was like one person who worked on um the witcher and the other person who worked on the mysterious benedict society and they said something very similar like the question was well how do you sit down to approach these things when you first start and david goyer said the same thing when he started batman begins uh and honestly they said almost the exact same thing so that's why maybe i can update it a little bit yeah dude Um, so but then i'm going to go back to david goyer's example (laughs) to tell you what so so the question was the first thing you do is you sit down and you say what are the things that make this the thing, you know, and you make a list of them. (laughs) So what are the things that make Batman, Batman? Like, what are the things, if people didn't have those things, it just wouldn't be Batman anymore. And, you know, it might be anything from the car, the the car, the origin story, maybe Um, the cave, Gotham city, you know, and you list those things. And then, and then they're the things you have to put in your, in your thing then everything else you don't list maybe has wiggle room you know maybe there's some things you can reinvent maybe there's things you can play with uh maybe there's things you can take a new spin but you have to deliver those things if there is a fan base that's coming to see it for those things they're like your essentials and then you can play with the rest so that's the david goyer thing yeah because basically you don't want an audience walking out of this movie going where was the sword fight? I went to this fantasy film and there wasn't a sword fight. Where was the magic being Where the used? horses? Where was the <laughs> people on horseback? Where's the right? castle? Where's, right. Where was the dragon? Like, why didn't they have a dragon? Why didn't, right? like you said, Bob, why didn't they have a castle? Like, what the hell happened? Like, you, there's, and it's, it's, it's like audience has a certain, I mean, everyone listening goes into a movie with certain expectations uh, like, okay, today you want, um, you want Taco Bell. All right. When you go to Taco Bell, you have there, every, every item meat, on the menu cheese, is going to have these lettuce, pieces right? of the, of, of the meal that are going to satisfy those Taco Bell expectations. You know, you, you name a, name a cuisine. 
it comes with certain things, right? You're going to have Italian. You're going to go to an Italian restaurant. You're going to want, you're going to want your pasta. You're going to want your, your sauce. You're going to want your garlic. You know, all those things are like inherent to eating the Italian meal. Right. And if you don't have the pasta sauce, somebody's gonna be like, I mean, like this movie was great, but where was the, you know, where was the thing that I, that I love about these types of movies? So, you know, a lot of people find the blank page very daunting, right? I'm starting out. What what do I do first? And it's like once you've really honed in on what your premise is, a great starting place from there is to identify what are the genre expectations that like the audience wants? What are the people, places, things, scenarios, and dialogue that a typical uh, movie in my genre that I'm working with delivers? And so um, I have this book that I believe I, is a great tool for this part of the process for delivering on genre expectations, for just identifying genre expectations. And I talked about it one other time if you want to go back and listen on the Batman episode, speaking of Batman. Um, <clears throat> and it's not only a great tool for identifying genre expectations, but if you're doing genre hybrids, uh, like I was talking off the mic about how like, okay, Warm Bodies is a romantic comedy and a zombie movie mixed. Right. Well, this book has an entire chapter on zombie movie expectations and it has a, an entire chapter on uh, romantic comedy expectations. The people, places, things, scenarios and dialogues you typically hear uh, in, a, in a romantic comedy. And, you know, a great place to start would just be to write all those down and see how you can paint them with your premise and do something fresh, subvert them. Um, so I just wanted to go to the very first chapter. Oh, by the way, the name of the book that I totally skipped past because <laughs> I was so excited just talking about the it's damn thing. Save the cat rights for TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the name of the book is Spoiler Alert, The Badass Book of Movie Plots. Why We All Love Hollywood Cliches. Um, and, it, and that's it, available for purchase. For that is available listens. for purchase okay. on Amazon. We're not um, getting paid to say that. Not either. getting it's just paid. A good book. It's, it's just, just a good one book. of my tools on my tool, you know, on my bookshelf that I use to help clients when they're not delivering on genre expectations. The simple first thing I do is I go to the genre that's in this book that they're working with. And I say, you know, your, your movie isn't, your script isn't delivering on the genre expectations. Here are some of the basic genre expectations as stated in this book, for instance, that you don't have, like, how can you add those and play with those genre expectations that you're not already doing? Um, so uh, the book is written by Steven Espinoza, Kathleen Killian Fernandez, and Chris Vanderkay. So the very first chapter in this book is fantasy. the fantasy epic. Um, and I just wanted to show, like, essential lines of dialogue. You are the chosen one, which we're going to talk about later, about mm -hmm. how this subverts that. Um, the fate of the world rests on the success of your journey, dear hero. Um, it was never the amulet. The power was in, within <laughs> you all along. Right? Sounds yep. familiar, yep. right? Um, yep. uh, essential characters. The wise old wizard. Now, this movie subverts that, right? It plays with those instead of a, a man. It's a sorceress, the wise old Raziel. Is it Raziel? 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 Finn Raziel? I can't pronounce it. Finn Raziel. Finn Raziel. Raziel. Okay. Yeah. Um, Raziel is, is a woman. So they took that wise old wizard trope 
and they painted it with the premise and subverted it a little, right? Right. Um, the evil sorcerer, right? They did the same thing. They gender yeah. swapped it. So sorceress. So they did something fresh and unique. Um, the princess. I mean, Sorsha is pretty much the princess. And that's like a subversion of that as well, right? Right. Like, yeah, totally. Um, a total interesting way to play with that trope. Um, the reluctant hero, of course. Um, the idiosyncratic creatures. I mean, the brownies. The brownies pretty much fit in this, pretty hardcore. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and then uh, choose your magical location. Of course, castle, right? They have two two castles in this movie. Um, Village, uh, I would guess. Yeah, there's so many. Uh, don't forget. Don't forget these items. Uh, a wand. <laughs> a, a an old book. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, those things are, they, you can just, uh, and, I, and I'll go through some of each chapter in this book has like a standard plot in that genre. Mm -hmm. Um, just like the basic beats and I'll name some of the beats and you'll, you'll see how this movie plays exactly into those, uh, before the heroism, the reluctant hero is just a regular guy. Definitely, definitely applies, right? Yeah. Um, a mysterious, powerful being asks the reluctant hero to go on a quest to find an item. Instead of an item, it's a baby. A baby, but right? See how it plays with those tropes and and puts the premise on it. And as I called different. it in our chat, the Fellowship of the Baby. Exactly. <laughs> Pretty much, right? Yeah, right. And that's like we're not we don't have premise with a new skin on this. But that's basically that exercise, too. Like, like instead of a ring, well, it's a baby. What happens if it's... Yeah. Do you think that one of the reasons the chapter of that book is describing Willow so well is also because Willow is kind of like an offbeat Lord of the Rings? You know what I mean? Like, because that's kind of... I would think that writing right, that chapter I think that's, that book would be Lord yeah, of the Rings. Yeah, Will, it's funny. Willow isn't li isn't listed on the 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 great examples of it, but, like, they, they, li they list Labyrinth, uh, the Two Towers, The Never-Ending Story, uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I'd almost argue um, Willow fits that stuff better than some of those. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I'm listing these, right? Like, <laughs> right, yeah. Um, a wizened villager tells our hero he should embrace his destiny. It's there. It's, it's right there. Right. Um, the reluctant hero bids his family and friends farewell. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. The, the idiosyncratic creature stalks the hero longing for the item literally literally steals the baby <laughs> steals the baby got the baby yeah. <laughs> um the group takes refuge uh at a palace where the princess offers her assistance i mean this movie does that only it's outside the palace and sorsha is like actually a, vi a villain um so um with with the evil defeated the the reluctant hero returns home with the magical item and brings peace to the kingdom i mean that's that's here. Essentially, so yeah. so I think I think just seeing these examples in this book, it speaks to the power of when you're coming up with a premise, when you know what your movie is. One great place to start is to identify the genre expectations within what what your premise is working in and to at least just like write those down. Like who, what are the types of people, places, things, scenarios, and dialogue that like the audience will be expecting from this. And that's a good starting place to deliver on the promise of your premise and to subvert it in ways that make it fresh and do something 
that the audience is typically expecting that you can then do something new with. So it, it's just th this book is a great tool to do that. But even if you don't have this book, just being mindful of that um, is is very important. And I think Willow delivers. Dude, Willow's like it's like the condensed orange juice of half of the half of the genre man it's got all that stuff in there all pushed together yeah yeah so i yeah. think this is it's a great example of how willow delivers on those genre no, expectations for I, th sure. I think this would be a good time to jump in and talk a little bit about the hero's journey okay absolutely sure. yeah um because a lot of the things you just mentioned are in the hero's journey mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. the hero's journey if if you don't know the hero's journey uh there's this thing by joseph campbell uh what, what is the book called? A Hero with a Thousand Faces. A Hero Faces. with a Thousand Faces. Yep. And he basically did a lot of, uh, he basically went through and analyzed stories told around campfires and tribal stories and, and historical biblical stories and all these things throughout time and kind of found similar patterns that all these stories mm -hmm. shared. And and they they brought, you know, from the dawn of mankind till now. Uh, that that they have and th this was kind of repopularized in some ways i, w I wouldn't say repopularized because i think it was in also the heavily criticized too mm -hmm. it's, it, it's it's well, being criticized. It, not maybe I, not as a writing tool but what what i was going to say is it was repopularized by um lucas so that's why i think it's worth oh, okay. bringing it up so when whenever you hear lucas talk about star wars and presumably if this goes back to the 70s you know he was thinking about this too uh, he was heavy into the Joseph Campbell stuff. And when he was thinking of Star Wars, he was trying to do a hero's journey story. And presumably, he probably did the same thing with Willow, is my gut. Mm -hmm. So it's all, uh, about all about myth making. Yeah. Right, right. So then there, there's this other guy, Christopher uh, Vogler, Vogler. Uh, I always call yeah. him Vogler. It might be Vogler. Uh, he wrote a book called is it the writer's journey uh, uh he, he has two uh, of them he has two of them uh, uh shame on me myself. yeah but uh, here i know the writer's journey is one of them that might not be the one the writer's journey mythic structure for writers christopher vogler that's that's yes. the one so he basically translated it to um like more practical if you want to write a screen replication right here, here's yeah. what you do as opposed to um, Campbell's book feels more like a philosophical book. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. totally. it's, it's totally. very um, heady. It's very, yeah, high level thinking. And, and you know, so he kind of went boots on the ground. Like, yeah, like yeah, he, he went through and distilled it into here's here's some instruction we can follow from that mm -hmm. book, you know, mm -hmm. um, for brainstorming he, tools. Yeah, for, for brainstorming tools. And I, I just brought one of these up here just to give you an example. And I, I think a lot of them are just hit and the things Jimmy said already, but these are the 12 beats. By the way, I used to use these, like when I first started in screenwriting before Save the Cat, I was a big hero's journey guy because I didn't feel like Sid Field gave enough. He was just like, ah, it's four acts. You got some plot points. You have a midpoint. You're done. <laughs> and I, I needed something a little more. So I always went to the hero's journey. And and uh, so when Save the Cat came along, I think the reason I it appealed to me so much was because it was very similar to the hero's journey like yeah it was like more specified actionable version of this it, exactly yeah. so so this is like a more specified version of campbell, Joseph campbell yeah and then uh save the cat i think is a more specified version of that so they're mixing in some other templates as mm -hmm. well so so here are the 12 
I'm ca- I keep calling them beats because I'm used to save the cap, the 12 steps. I don't know what, what they call them. State Vogler calls them stages okay. of the hero's journey. Okay. The 12 which is stages. like stations of the cross, right? With yeah. With yeah. Jesus's, yeah. 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 So the, uh, the ordinary world is where we meet our hero. Um, very common, uh, to all these, like the setup and save the cat. But, you know, here we meet Willow. We get to know who he is, things like that. There's a call to adventure. Uh, and usually that's kind of like the catalyst. That is the thing. In this case, there's almost multiple. Like mm-hmm. I, I was, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know what I, you could say. It's almost like three. Yeah. yeah. And this one has a very classic, like you can almost see them turning to the historical, uh, you know, hero's journey stories. There's so many stories about pushing a baby on the river and then mm-hmm. it goes down the river moses's story I mean, moses, moses, was, right. yeah, yeah. Um, talk about a hero's journey yeah star wars or, i'm sorry star wars superman in some ways is the mm-hmm. same yep. kind of yep. moses's journey you know you can see this in a lot of places but the call to adventure here i could see being mul- not that i'm going to go through each of these beats and try to figure them out but but feel free if you want to tag in but there's that there's a sense when they find the baby but then there's also the sense i think we have to do something with the. Yeah, baby. I was going to say the the dog attack would be. Yeah, yeah that would probably yep, be and, mine. Yep, that's and the meeting would, about what to do the about meeting it. About yep. it would be the call, right? Yep. yep, yep, that's what I would say too. And then mm-hmm. refusal of the call. They never want to do it at first. And this was mm-hmm. the big one that I learned from the hero's journey was this refusal of the call. It's very important. And save the cat. We call that the debate. And before before I checked into Hero's Journey, and I was just kind of writing on my own, making up as I go, or following Sid Field, I didn't really know about the debate the, or the refusal. Um, that's not a Sid Field concept. If you if you look in Sid Field's screenplay, he just gotcha. he's just like, you know, set set the conflict up, then do this. So refusal of the call was new to me. Um, meeting the Willow mentor. has do, do Willow has a big. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just say, saying Willow definitely has a measurable refusal of the call. Yeah, like, yeah. He's like, I can't do this. I'm, yeah. Sure. I was going to say with Sid Field, though, do you think that's because the refusal is more of a character thing than a plot thing? I, I think so. You know, I think, like he was ignoring that for that I, reason. I, I think that to some extent he was le- leaving storytelling a little vague so you could fill so in you the come blanks. Up with it? Mm-hmm, yeah. Not doing the work for it. Yeah. Um, so it's a little less formulaic. And I think that does appeal to people. It's like as long as I hit these very high level, large building mm-hmm. blocks, I can do anything I can, in between. I can do anything in between. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's appeal to that for sure. Um, and then other people are like, okay, I'm stuck now because you didn't give me any more help than just say, Right, a beginning, middle, end, you know, and it's like, thanks. Um, <laughs> That's the, great. You know, diff- different strokes for different folks, I guess. Uh, meeting of the mentor. Um, the, the one thing I will say about this is if you read the books, like Vogler's book, there's, there's this whole idea that the mentor gives out items to help on the journey, like magic items and stuff like that. That's a very common thing that happens at this phase when they meet the mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, Crossing the first threshold is the hero leaves their comfort zone for the first time and kind of is in this kind of new world. Um, the sixth thing is tests, allies, and enemies. Um, this is where they make friends and they start building their team during the journey. You know, and, they, and it says, yeah, and it's going to speak to this later on one of my talking points. It tests out the allegiances in their unfamiliar and special world. That, yeah. Right, right, right. And then there's there's getting closer to your goal, which is the approach of the inmost cave. Um, and it usually is you're getting closer and closer. It's narrowing. Things are getting tenser. 
There's the ordeal, the hero's biggest test yet, which I always kind of interpret this as the all is lost, but I'm not sure if that's, if I'd have to look at like how things shake down. I don't use this anymore. So I, I, <laughs> I, I, I may revise Dusting it off for Willow. Major blast from the past for Jamie here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, reward seizing the sword. Uh, there's kind of light at the end of the tunnel. So first there's the all is lost. Then there's something back. There's light at the end of the tunnel. There's the road back where is, is kind of like, the journey to kind of win the day again but then there's always the resurrection there's some kind of sometimes a real resurrection in these stories there is some kind of rebirth or or something comes back sounds but very jesus like yes there's some <laughs> final hurdle that's reached and they have to like almost come back from the dead a lot of times this is interpreted as that arc moment we talk about when there's a when there's a uh high tower surprise and then they have to dig down deep and almost kind of give birth to themselves as a new person yes. to win the day. Mm -hmm. and then return with the elixir the hero heads home triumphant and that's that's the hero's journey and my gut says this was working in george lucas's mind mm -hmm. as he wrote out willow and as he wrote out star wars, star wars. the original yeah. star wars as well yeah so we, it's crazy that we've gone 89 episodes and never talked about this. I, like I think, that is, I think we might have early on. We I might have touched might on be. it, but not like to this extent. Yeah. yeah. This is I, the fantasy episode. We haven't done a fantasy movie. No, really, I, I mean, not a, so star Wars counts. Yes. We talked about I meant how like, George Lucas I meant said like it's a fantasy. As definable in the genre. No, not of, like this, right? Yeah, we, yeah. We, and and Northman is a is a is a an unconventional fantasy in that right. it's a fantasy world, but it's mundane to everybody that's there. Right. Um, right. So so this is really our first true fantasy episode. So it's fun to talk about stuff we haven't talked about before. And, and, you know, <laughs> the one advantage to this, like some people don't like how maybe something like save the cat gets very specific with page counts and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yep. In some ways, if you just want a little guidance, you just want a little brainstorm tool, but you don't want as much guidance as a save the cat, maybe scale back and try, give this a try. Um, maybe it'll just help you kind of inspire. Well, what comes next? What's this thing? And especially if you're writing kind of one of these epic fantasy stories, they're all kind of hero's journey stories to an extent. And I think my favorite thing about all these brainstorming tools is that um, by studying what has come before and and been a hit with audiences, it gives you that much more like it arms you with the power to subvert those things mm -hmm. in very satisfying ways without understanding these to start with, though, you can't understand how to subvert them in a way that's going to be satisfying. So I think there's really value in just like studying the genre that you're working in, you know, to make sure you understand how this genre works. And this is another great example of structurally how this genre works. Right. Um, yeah. The yeah. interestingly enough, much like save the cat, you could, if you read the Vogler book, he applies it to different genres. It's not just fantasy. And in fact, I'm I'm reading this off a off somebody's blog here. I, I just read the thing. No, but I cut and pasted it right from Chris Vogler, and you and you you yeah. it was accurate. It's so. the same thing. Yeah. So yeah. so people you know use these for horror movies and stuff yeah. like that too. It's sure. not just fantasy. Right. Use it for a comedy movie. Right. Well, really. Good. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Thanks for adding that on to. Yeah, and the blog I'm looking at right now is actually breaking down Rocky as the example oh wow okay and, 
And I would say I would lean toward this in golden fleece movies of all kinds, because mm-hmm. they're the ones that really have people that go on a road mm-hmm. trip, gather the team and things like that. So, yep. Yeah. And yeah. Golden no, and that, and if, and that is what Willow is, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Willow is a golden fleece, so that's the save the cat pattern that we talked about before. One of their genres, and Rocky is a golden fleece movie as well. They're both they're both stories about people trying to win a prize, get to a place, kind of get to a destination, and it's kind of road trip movies. Where road trip movies could be metaphoric, like like get to the championship, or it could be an actual road, like Willow or Lord of the Rings has, or Star Wars has, for that matter. Cool. Um, I think uh, the next thing we have one here really works in with this. It's common fantasy writing problems, right? Yeah. So this is going to be, and guys, please interject. I don't want it to be 15 minutes of me lecturing. No, no. So when things come to mind, when anecdotes spark something that you agree with or disagree with, please do. But, uh, so, um, Get out your bingo cards because I read amateur <laughs> scripts five days a week. It tracks, man. It tracks. <laughs> I am approaching 400 amateur scripts that I've consulted on in the last six years. So I only do one a week because um, that's all my brain can handle. Does the 400th um, customer get like a a prize or something? <laughs> yeah, the best notes I've ever done, basically. Because <laughs> every set of notes, I mean, it just gets, it takes me longer and longer because the longer I do this, the more things I notice. And I right. just can't leave anything off the table. I feel like I need to like tell everyone everything they could possibly improve about their vision that they're trying to, you know, make their intent match their execution. So, one thing I didn't ex- expect is just how many fantasy scripts I would be sent. <laughs> uh, without a doubt, like people associate with me me with horror because of my resume and because I've made seven horror films, feature films. Um, but um, I get sent a lot of comedies. I get sent a lot of dramas. But the thing I get sent the most is fantasy. And specifically, like a lot of people do the Star Wars thing where it's a sci-fi, but it's really a fantasy, you know, um, and and uh, it's like a hybrid. And um, so I would say I've probably s- consulted on at least 100 amateur fantasy scripts and they all do the same things wrong. They all uh, have similar problems and while watching willow one of the things that struck me is how willow doesn't do it does all the things right that people send me fantasy scripts do that make their scripts not work and so i thought this would be a good episode for me to kind of break down the top four problems with fantasy scripts i'm sent it's just like the common pain points that i see that make these scripts not work and just kind of show how willow does it right and so, um, yeah, so, and, and it all comes down to, yes, your world building is important, but when it comes down to it, consolidation and simplicity is, is important. Um, making these things, because it's a fantasy world, right? So everything is new to the audience. All of it is new. Nothing is, we can't, we're not familiar with anything in your world when you're telling a fantasy story, right? So you have to keep that in mind because the the audience is navigating so much new information where it's like we sit down in an average movie, we are familiar with so much of what's happening. We don't have to like work, do some inner monologue of like, how does this work? What is this thing? Like you see somebody cooking, cooking eggs 
You don't have to ask yourself, well, how does that work? What's that going to taste like? In a like? Judd Apatow movie, you know, <laughs> you know what eggs are, you know? <laughs> right. So, and you have to, when you're writing in fantasy, if you're out there listening and you're writing fantasy, you have to keep in mind that pretty much like everything you're introducing to the audience is completely new to them, right? And so there's so much uh, information being absorbed without even the story elements happening, right? I, um I have a, um, so I, I teach a, you know, I teach seminars that we either write a feature script in two days. No, we outline a feature script in two days. We don't write a feature script in two days or a television pilot or something like that. And my biggest red flag is always when I say, okay, tomorrow we're going to write a two page outline at most two pages, maybe one. And there are some people that go into a complete panic attack with that. And they're like, I can't, there's no way I can write a one page. It wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't, you know, in this. And then I say, that's okay. Trust me. If it doesn't make sense, I'll ask questions. Just consolidate yourself to two pages. And some of it's practical because there's only a certain amount of students in the class. Um, and most of the time, those people come back with a 10-page outline. They can't do the other way. Or the other version is they do write the 10, the two page outline, but they can't help, but continuously say, and then, you know, uh, Sir Gwaine was used, he used to be part of the wizard order of such and such. And he was the cousin of such and such and this and that and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. It's kind like, mumbo no, jumbo stuff. Right. I, I, yeah. I just want your catalyst. <laughs> get there. That's all. Get there. I, no, yep. I said, what's your catalyst? I didn't say that. I didn't <laughs> say what's all those things. And they can't stop, but giving you all that stuff. Yeah. That's I mean, the, and, it, and it's it's always a big red flag. And me. it's the you know, as someone who's you know been doing this, been screenwriting for twenty plus years, like I was there, right? I've done that. I've been the person who's like, "What do you mean? Like, I can't, I can't say this in two pages? Are you fucking crazy?" Um, but anyway, I, I so Jamie, I'm always, I, I'm always like, I've done this class many, many, many times. You can do it in two pages. <laughs> I've, I've seen thousands of people like you at this point you do it in two pages. All right. So Jamie, I'm going to ask for an old anecdote here and then I'll bounce off of it because this anecdote, it really speaks to everything I'm going to discuss about these top four problems that I encounter with fantasy scripts, which is the concept of big world, small window. Do you want to set that up for us? Yeah, sure. So this is something I, I kind of hit on uh, in my early days of screenwriting because I was somebody that liked fantasy and sci-fi and, and these big kind of things. So big world, small window, it's a Terminator is my favorite example, right? So Terminator has this huge world of the battle of the machines versus the humans. And there's all kinds of mythology and how they got it's a there global, yeah, Glo global, global battle. It, if you made that movie, it's going to be a $200 million movie. Instead, Terminator has a small window into that bigger world. The small window is Reese and the Terminator are here in our time. So we don't have to explain the world here. And we just know for the only thing we know about this huge conflict is these two characters and what they tell us about it. So it's a very small window. Instead of showing the whole world, we're just taking two little pieces of it. And that's our story is going to focus on those two pieces. So that's our small, smaller window. budget too. <laughs> smaller budget, but the, but the world is big. It's fucking right, huge. The, but it feels big on a the small. The world budget. is that's, fucking yeah. huge. That, that's, that's the thing. And that's the part I stumbled onto early in my career is I wanted to write these big world building sci-fi kind of things, but I 
I didn't, I needed to write it that it could be made for $2 million. So I had to figure that out. Right. And that, and this is, this is kind of the idea. Yeah. Yep. And it's a ter- it's a Terriasio thing, right? From wordplayer.com from their, their old site, right? I'm not sure that that's a Terry Ross. Yeah, I pre- I'm pretty sure because or or Ted Elliott. Here's the quote that I've I just been don't using. remember. It. Yeah, the, the, remember. yeah, I'm pretty sure this is a word player article, and that's where that's where the concept originated. Is big big world, small window. Okay. Um, Ted Elliott, who co-wrote Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Aladdin, um, so soldiers. many Shrek, fantasy, right? Um, small soldiers, so many movies. Um, he said the way to make a boring movie is to show us everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> so um, I'm going to break down the top four uh, common fantasy writing problems, and they all are related to big world, big window. That is that is what gives birth to all of the problems I'm going to mention. So... And, and I'm going to echo that in a second. So the first problem that I that I see most commonly is big world, big window. You're showing us too much of the geography of the story world. Your ge- geographical window is too big. So what do I mean by this? Too many territories, too many locations, too many warring factions, too many alliances, too many enemies. I'm reading scripts. You know, I said I consulted on about 100 fantasy scripts. I would say like 30 of those are over 200 pages, the scripts. The scripts are over 200 pages. So, you know, you, you want to be aiming when a, when a producer sees a 200-page script. It's a red flag already because it's already 80 pages more expensive, worth of more expensive things than another script that is coming next on their desk. And that's so it needs to earn that extra 80 pages of, of production expenses, you know? Um, so think of it like star Wars, right? Like, okay, here's, here's a good example. So now this is not throwing shade of game of Thrones. I have not watched game of Thrones. I know Jamie has, um, but according to Wikipedia and correct me if I'm wrong, Jamie, um, game of Thrones has 16 factions in its story world. And then it also within the kingdom has seven factions of family, seven different families that are fighting amongst each other. So that's 23 factions to keep up with, with their own leaders, with their own politics, with their own alliances, with their own enemies. That works in a TV show, that works in a novel series. Game of Thrones is not a two hour movie. And if you tried to you try to cram 23 different territories with leaders and politics and allies and enemies and all the drama that comes along with that into one two-hour sitting, it's just too much for the audience to keep up with. And it gives birth to all these other problems that are coming next. Um, It's basically like, imagine Star Wars. If you have, so Star Wars has two warring factions, right? You have the Rebellion and the Empire. That's it. That's all we have to keep up with. We have to keep up with the leaders and politics of the empire, and they're and literally they're, the good and the bad. The good and the bad. Yeah, yeah, now, it. yeah. And going back to Game of Thrones too. I mean, even you can't even point to many more examples than Game of Thrones of that. Like, there's some things that have spawned since then that are sci-fi that are really complex that they're trying to be like it's the Game of Thrones of science mm-hmm. fiction or something. Mm-hmm. But there, there aren't even a lot of examples of. It's kind of in the title. Like, Yes, that's storytelling. Right? It's just yeah. not, uh, yeah. you know, and 
interesting when you mentioned Star Wars, though. I, I can think of one that might might be of interest, but there's a good reason why. It's Star Trek. Star Trek. So Star Trek has a very expansive universe with all kinds of Tons things. Tons of worlds, on. Tons, right? Yeah. But but that but it was introduced to us like one at a time as a series and, and, if it's, series. and then and if it's, each movie is just it's paying just attention one to thing. one of those yeah, one right. thing right exactly. it's, it's always it's almost always if there's more than two warring factions it's they're like tangential and just like callbacks to the to the show they're right. not like focusing on four so like the, imagine the lesson exactly. should be you're allowed to write your fantasy movie but you have to write all the extended universe stuff in another media that's what i'm trying yeah, that, yeah all know. of this and everything that's coming next is right, all right. that bob is basically saying yeah like like Do it somewhere uh, else. so like yeah. it, it matt like um, okay so like imagine star wars so i said we have the rebellion versus the empire now imagine star wars if it was the rebellion versus the empire versus the other rebellion versus the other empire you that's, had two warring factions that's dune <laughs> that's what, you just described dune uh, which we well, didn't do on the podcast. Well, Dune no, we didn't. sucks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> by the what, but, by the way, Dune was a weird. Did you guys watch Dune? Yeah, totally. I, I'm a big Dune fan, but it's a weird watch, right? It's, it's a weird not, watch. It's half it's, a movie. It's like half a movie. It's half a story. They couldn't fit the whole thing. In and they really movie. don't explore all those. No, it's alliances. It, maybe and when they finish the movie, we can do it. When they finish their yeah. movie, because they yes. didn't finish their movie. Yeah, like if, if we get both both halves or yeah, whatever. Maybe it is, we could talk maybe. about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not talking about half a movie. Oh my god. Okay, but so so the average fantasy script I'm sent has at least four warring factions, usually six or eight warring factions. So it's usually taking place on like if it's on an earthbound kind of place, if on one planet, it's like seven countries are in the story and we're watching characters in all seven. It's like across two oceans. And if it's in space, it's on like seven planets with their own. Each of them has their own warships with captains on the warships. And if it's on in the water, there's like... So, like I read a script that had like 17 different warships with different captains and different flags and different world building. Each of them is their own world um, with like and and these scripts have like 50 to 60 locations um, minimum. And that's why they're 200 pages long minimum. You're writing um, a board and, game. You're not writing. A and, movie. and so <laughs> so and, and look like this show is a monument. We are a we we worship the whiteboard. We talk about the importance of delivering on the promise of your premise and taking the time to do those hundred idea brainstorming exercises where you come up with um, as many uh, ideas that are fresh and premise specific as possible. And I, I encourage writers to have scripts that are, I want to read scripts that are overflowing with ideas. I want every time I turn the page it to it just be like overflowing with creativity. But once you come up with, once you fill those whiteboards with all those ideas, it's also very important to be mindful of just how many you can actually use of those ideas and what can stay in the off-screen movie. Right? Yeah, it's. It, I think Bob hit something. You know, as an old D and D guy and start the Star Trek approach. Like if you if you had D and D, like let's say you, you know, D and D is your universe, which is this huge universe with tons of monsters and all this stuff. And and let's say you had a campaign map and everything on top of that you can write you know in one module you pick a very specific dungeon or or adventure or scenario to approach you don't try to do all of it 
in the one story. So if you have an expansive universe, maybe the real answer is, can you focus on the one thing for this adventure as opposed to telling? And then maybe the whole thing. thing. If you say focus on the battle, not the war. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Something smaller, some small window. That's the window we're talking about. That's the window. Find a window to talk about. Don't write about the whole thing and move around and tell 50 stories. Write 50 screenplays if you want, but, you know, tell one story. You, you, story the you don't start with the earth cold every time you write a story, right? So, <laughs> like, right. Yeah, so, 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 I, so, so now on the opposite end, the Willow example. So let's look at the Willow geographical territory. So unlike Middle Earth and all these other fantasy movies, we don't even get in the movie itself the the land itself doesn't even get a name first of all so there's nothing to confuse yourself about that right it's just the world we don't even know what the hell is it called middle earth from wish right like we don't even know it doesn't matter um that in itself is instructive right um i mean there's nothing to get confused not one detail there to to confuse the audience what is middle earth it doesn't matter that doesn't matter okay so that's one thing there are actually only five specific locations with like names and 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 relevance everything else in between is like generic woods generic forest generic water generic mountain there's actually only five you know to compare to the 50 locations that i just said in the average fantasy script i'm being sent with all these history behind the each of these places and their importance to the story world and blah 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 this has five locations with names the Newland Nolwyn Village, however you say those people, their village, the Nelwyn Village, the crossroads where he finds them in the in the cage where, where he finds Mad Mardigan, yeah. the crossroads. You're right. Um, the castle of Tiraslene, mm-hmm. um, and the Nakmar Castle. That's it. Everything else is like generic. There's the there's the Galadorn Village, but they don't give it a name. The, where they seek refuge and they work with and they kidnap uh, Sorsha there. So that counts. That's a specific, that's a more uh, that's a location that has a little bit more importance to the story. But so we're talking four. We're talking five locations that we actually know the name of and need to keep up with the name of. What is this place? And even if Why they didn't say the names, we're still okay. You know what I yeah. mean? Like we're five. still good. Yeah. Five. Yeah. Five. I think that's really instructive, and it doesn't feel small. No, not at all. It doesn't feel like a five location movie because they have generic woods and generic rivers. What I'm saying is like if you're out there and you got a fantasy script and you have like 50 locations and each of these is a castle with its own, you know, history and stuff. How can you ter- take that break that 50s those 50 locations down and make this and only show us the window that has 10 locations, right? I mean like I can't help but constantly reiterate what Jamie said like you're not writing D&D. Like yeah. that. This is all like what? this is all to, how D and D is played. Not like, to discourage the writing of D and D. You no, actually no, can write the D and D. You just don't need to put all that on the page. Right, um, but I feel like the tendency of someone who's a fan of such a thing is to do that. That's all. Right. That's, oh, I know. That's why I'm saying. Jamie I've read, knows what I'm saying. I've yeah. read you know fifty scripts that are over two hundred pages. Because I'm, of this. I'm awful at DVD. I got kicked out of a D and D group. So, I, mean, I know. <laughs> So, so strangely enough, and this, I, I'm, I'm going to tread lightly here, but I actually think Willow is a little too small for me being a D&D mm. guy. No, no, no. That's, um, that's a good pushback. 
That's yeah. a good pushback. Um, sometimes I think it's too simplistic and it makes it feel a little bit more childlike, which it is. You know, it is a mm. kid's thing. You're saying uh, the lack of those locations with all these stories and histories and gravitas. But, and and the, there's a balance, right? Uh, the, so the one we talk about, or I bring up when I do talk about the Terry Rossio, Ted Elliott off-screen movie is, you know, my father fought in the Clone Wars. You know, I I find like that's the balance. It's like this 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 world that feels like there's a history and there are a lot of things going on in the shadows sort of things and yeah. the stories we can get to later, like the hint of them, but a very careful delivery of the hint of them without confusing us or making us think like setting up a promise you're not going to pay off mm-hmm. or something like <laughs> right. that. Um, it's And it's a very delicate balance. I, it's because I think erring on the side of simplicity is probably right in the screenwriting mm-hmm. world. That's uh, what I'm saying. Yeah. The medium sure. that we're talking about on this show. For yeah. sure. Also, and, I would even argue that Willow does lean more towards a family film. Than, it does. It than does. Like D&D would or, or Conan would or something like that. Uh, yeah. It's, it's but definitely it's playing in the genre it that is, totally. has big, big worlds. Um, right. Um, but but kind of but, like what I do like about Dune and Lord of the Rings and things like that is that they, I don't know they're just ner- you, the nerdiness of it almost you can right? almost you can almost feel the texture there the texture yeah, yeah. of history and weight and stuff like that somehow it really feels real but those aren't but, examples I would I would point to people that send stuff to Jimmy either yeah like, but they're all but but to your point they're all trying to emulate that right yeah um, right but you can't. Right. But but I bet if I broke down uh, Fellowship of the Ring, it wouldn't have fifty locations. Um, no. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it, yeah. It's it's um, it's definitely a weird thing because I'm. I mean, I'll go. I'll say you know, write what you love, but writing a Lord of the Rings style story on spec is is a tricky proposition mm-hmm. and i and i've i've written all kinds of tricky propositions in my time because i just i'm like screw it i'm gonna i've always wanted to write a fantasy thing i'm writing a fantasy thing who cares nobody can stop right. me but it's <laughs> it's tricky it's tricky can, can i throw out there too like what you're saying about willow not having these little as much these little details and stuff that might like to go back to what we had already talked about with who lucas hired as a writer that might be one of the positives that came from yeah. that guy because mm-hmm. he yeah. probably isn't as maybe he didn't care about yeah, yeah he doesn't care he's just like they go here and this happens they he's go like, here and this happens he's like oh we then we do some nonsense because he's nonsense used to writing land. characters just being yeah. in a room saying jokes like, right he doesn't right. care where it happens <laughs> yeah yeah um it's, it's kind of like um on on sci-fi shows and stuff and uh and csi or something like that like a lot of times and I'll, I'll go back to Grey's Anatomy. Like the writers there, they don't really care about medical stuff. And medical, medical. Yeah, we talked yeah, about that in the Doctor Strange yeah. magic aspect. They, they magic, magic, medical, magic, medical, medical, yeah. medical, medical. Yeah, they just the dialogue for any listener who is not aware. Like a lot of the dialogue in the medical shows, it just says medical on the page and then they have a professional come in and fill in the blanks with actual <laughs> medical stuff, medical details. <laughs> right. Which, which, by the way. That that bugs me because oh, it drives me crazy. I I like like to me that somebody else is coming in and filling in the medical tells me that somehow the medical discussion is not character driven or thematic. Right, it seems like filler. I agree. That that whenever I hear that, I heard it. I heard it again at Austin at a panel I was sitting in for like one of the procedural shows, and it just 
when I hear it, it's like nails to the chalkboard. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no, they should tell me what the medical thing is, explain it to me, and then I should write it. That's the way I feel about it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's that's yeah. Well, here. speaking or, or, about character, yes. Okay, the number two most common problem with the fantasy script writing that I come across is too many speaking role roles. Your big window, big big world, big character window, too many speaking roles. And by speaking roles, I'm not just talking about the cast. I'm saying I read scripts, and this is not an exaggeration, that have like 120 to 130 speaking roles with like 50 to 60 extras that have one line. Well, I, I, I just wrote this generic because I see this all the time. Old man number three, watch out for that dragon. And <laughs> old man number three is never on screen again. He has one line. And I read scripts that they have 50 speaking roles that are like the main cast. And then they have another 50 to 60 old man number four, old old woman number seven says, my child. Like, you know, like, and and like looking at this from a producer hat, like when, when you're writing a script, you have to also, I know it's hard to like think about the produ the production side when you're just you're just in your zone and telling your story, your big your big world and your big window, and you're so excited. But like every single extra has a costume, every single extra has a day rate, every single extra has to be fed. So when you have someone who's an extra and they have a single line of dialogue, their pay rate goes up. So they are more expensive. So every single extra that you have that says one line is costing the production way more than it should. Also, it's another setup. And it's well, it's for, for it's, the camera. It's, it's hair and makeup. Yeah. It's 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 logistics from the product from the unit production manager who's got to like wrangle fifty six speaking extras and their and their food allergies and their. I mean, I'm serious. These things matter. This is some so, PTSD on Jimmy's part. So, like, when you're, <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you're, when you're writing a script and you're like, oh my god, I like, really take a hard look at these extras. And if they, if the extra has one line, and that's it, like, is there a way you can weave that line into another character who has three or four lines, and all of a sudden, like, you're kind of earning that extra pay rate, you know, and 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 those three or four lines can knock out. Uh, what the what old man number two, old man number three, and old man number four said as a team together, you know. Um, and so like I'm reading these scripts, like I said, with like hundreds of speaking roles, and then like fifty to sixty extras, and and now let's compare it to Willow. Willow, with all its big epicness, I did not count the extras, but I went through and I watched the movie again, just looking for this. There is not a single person in Willow who speaks only once. If a character is speaking, even like Lug, Lug has like six lines. Not a um, woman. Lug has like six lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Willow's children. Willow's children each have like four or five lines. My point is, there's only 22 speaking roles in Willow, as epic as it is. 22. That's it. And each of those people speaks four, five, six times. So they gave, they earned their place to have a speaking role in the story so if you're out there and you have a fantasy fantasy script and you have 60 70 speaking roles 20 30 extras who say like one or two things is there a way you can shrink the window down where we are only following 20 of those people or is there a way where you can consolidate those people so that 
the 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 roles of those fifty speaking roles could be done with the twenty with twenty characters, and instead of having fifty speak featured extras, is there a way you can weave it in to where those extras have five or six lines that earn them the right to have a name on the screen, you know, in the story? So consolidating the cast is really important. Um, and from a budget standpoint, it's like one of the one of the things I feel like none of the writers who are sending me scripts are thinking about for a second, right? There's like so many things. It's like once you understand like how a movie is made, when a, when a producer is sitting down with your script and right off the bat, if you've got a hundred speaking roles, like no one's making that movie. Like it's just <laughs> not, not with a hundred. They might make that movie with with 20 people. So I think it's really instructive that as big as Willow is, there's only 22 speaking roles and there isn't a single extra who just has one line. So, and also number, number two, your number two character overload comes right from number one, right? Like all of it comes from number one. If you have more factions. So so the G, G, so, so the big world, big, big geographical window causes problems. I'm saying, right. Um, all right. So I'll move on to, I'm sorry, this is taking long, but I feel like, it's worth talking about. I'm going to talk about it. Let's talk about it now. Yeah. Um, all right. So <laughs> problem, common fantasy writing problem number three that I see, mythology overload. This isn't getting into the magic yet. Even though I consider magic part of mythology for the lesson, I'm going to save magic for last. So what do I mean by mythology overload? I mean that we're. I'm reading scripts with story worlds with like, Three prophecies. Prophecies on top of prophecies on top of prophecies <laughs> and 20 to 30 magical creatures. So like so many creatures on top of creatures on top. And here comes the the white beast of Valiant. And the white beast of Valiant is <laughs> like, you know, it has this backstory. It's like so many so many creatures and so many prophecies and that it, read, it reads like Tolkien on the page. It's right? Like I have to actually start. I create. I have to create a bestiary for the script that I'm reading. And it's not a joke. It's like so I can be constructive about how to improve the script. I actually have to start a bestiary as I'm reading the script of to keep up with all the creatures, so I can prove to the writer, look at all this. Look at all this. If I'm taking aside from your script itself, here's the bestiary that's within your story. I actually do this for my fantasy writers. And I'll have like a I'll have like a seven page dot PDF that's just all the creatures in their story and the histories that I'm supposed to follow. This is their powers, this is their limitations, you know. Um, so fan- prophecies off on top of prophecies, creatures on top of creatures. Now compare this to Willow. In its simplicity, Willow, we have one prophecy. It's the whole movie is based around the prophecy, right? Like, like Lord Dannon, right? Well, Lord Dannon, and she's gonna, you know, she's gonna bring about the end of Queen Bar. How do you say Barvomorda? Barvomorda. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's why the queen is is killing all the the female babies and you know looking for the mark. It's very simple, right? It's one prophecy. The whole thing is said about it, and then. There's only five magical creatures in the whole movie. There is the brownies, the death dogs, which are basically it's great premise delivery, right? What does an attack dog look like with willow paint? The death dogs, right. um, uh, the two-headed dragon, which is called the Eberisk. No, it's the Ebersisk after Eber and Siskel. Oh, 
Oh, it's Siskel yeah. and Ebert. It's the Ebert Sisk. <laughs> yeah. Um, the fairies and the trolls. So in all this huge, big world, the window is only small enough for us to meet five magical creatures. And I think that's really instructive, right? Because like you compare it to like what I'm saying is like, yes, I'm sure in the expanded Willow universe in those novels, if there's comics, I'm in, sure the we'll series, in the new series, there'll be, there'll you're going to yeah. meet creatures galore, right? You're going to meet like 50 creatures. And, and, and it's awesome to create those creatures, but you want to make sure that your window is small enough that we're only meeting five or six new creatures with powers and histories that we need to like keep up with. Right. So I think Willow's simplicity there again is very instructive. Willow with its big world, five creatures, not 30. I didn't mean, I didn't need to make a bestiary while I was watching Willow to figure out, I didn't need to go to Wikipedia to follow along with all these creatures. It's got five. That's all you need. That's all you need in your fantasy script. All right. And number four, I like again, I consider this mythology, but we're just gonna, for the sake of instruction, give it its own category. The number four most common uh, problem in a fantasy script that I'm sent is magic overload. We've talked about many times in this in this script. Double mumbo jumbo, quadru triple mumbo jumbo, quadruple mumbo jumbo, magic on top of magic, on top of magic, on top of magic. And what do I mean by that? The average, the average script, I, I went and I looked and I broke it down because I'm a numbers guy. As you know, I'm ridiculous about this. The average fantasy script I'm sent has at least five magic systems. What do I mean by magic systems? I mean, there's five different types of magic with its own rules and how it works and the limitations of those, of those types of magic. Blue magic, black magic, gold magic. Oh my, like it's like ridiculous. And, um, and again, it's one of those things where it's like, that works in TV, that works in novels, that works in a, in a graphic novel, that works in a comic book series. Um, but like in one movie, like, we can only follow so much and we can only absorb so much because it's all new to us. And like an expansion of that is like the average script I'm sent has between 20 and 30 magical objects. So just like the, the bestiary, I said, I start, I have to actually start making, I don't know how to pronounce this right. A grimoire. Like that's for the, that's right. A grimoire for the fantasy script I'm reading. I create like when I'm consulting, I create a grimoire for the script I'm consulting on, just so I can show the person, like, here's a 10 page PDF of just the magic in your, in your script. No story, just 10 pages of magic that I'm supposed to understand within your story, you know? And if you've got 10 pages, that's just explain, explaining objects, spells, and magic systems, that's a problem. Like that's too much for, for the audience to connect with that, like we're not going to be able to follow along in two hours. If you're telling a series that has seven seasons, you can have five different magic systems because one episode can be about that magic system. You can have 30 different magical objects because like one, one episode might be about one single object. Like that's like so many of the Stargate ep episodes are about that like there's a magical object that's on this planet we just got trapped on through the stargate Even something like uh buffy we had the same thing yeah, right so, there's a different so magical like, thing every episode again i encourage the the whiteboarding i encourage the world building i want you to come up with those 30 magical objects when you're figuring out your story but once you come up with them you can only give us a few 
I'll give you a go. I think Ghostbusters is a great way to conceptualize this. So let's swap the genre a little bit. Talk about magical objects. Ghostbusters. The magical objects in Ghostbusters are the PKE meter, the proton pack, the ghost trap, and the containment unit. Four. That's four magical objects. Now imagine if you're watching Ghostbusters and they threw 16 more things like that. <laughs> you have 16 other ghost yeah. hunting equipment, each with its own like technological powers and rules and limitations. It, Ghostbusters would fall apart, right? Like Ghostbusters, all you need is those four things. And that's plenty of, ma- that, it, all that shit is new to us, right? Like it's all... It's all fantastical. It's all yeah. stuff that doesn't exist in our world. It's all individually we need to be able to connect with those things in order to follow along and feel something about what's happening. And then when you, if you added 16 more of those, you just, you, you just give up, right? You just go like, I can't. It's too much. What the fuck is this? Oh, the ghost. <laughs> anyway, the ghost helmet. Um, so now let's talk about Willow. Willow has, Willow's magical window is, three magical objects, not 30. I don't need to make a grimoire for all the magical objects in Willow. There's three. There is Shalandra's wand, or how do you say it? Shalandra? Shalandria, I think. Shalandria's wand. Yeah. The fairy dust of the broken heart, which they do a great premise delivery with. They play with that in multiple ways. Um, There's lots of premise pretzels with that. And the magical acorns. That's it. Those are the three magical objects, not 30. Um, there's only one magic system. It's just like all the magic in the world is presented as working the same, right? It's essentially like the no... force. Yeah, it's the force. <laughs> it's the force. Yeah. yeah. And then and then even though there's a lot of chance when it's broken down, there's only four magical spells in the script. And that is Rin Finn Razel's transformation spell. Like he's just doing that spell over and over again, just chanting a little bit different. But they're all about transforming her back into her. Um, the Bavmortis pig transformation spell, um, and undoing that, the shelter protection spell he does to keep himself from being a pig, and then the queen's climactic ritual. So there's only four spells in the whole movie. Right. So right. we have three magical objects, one magic system, four spells. It ain't that much, right? Like it's and it's plenty. It's enough, right? Yeah. That's that's enough to keep up with. Like imagine this movie if they piled on another. 20 spells, another 10 magical objects, four other magic systems. Imagine if like the queen used magic that worked completely different and uh, Finn Rizel worked used magic that worked completely different. And we had to sit there and explain to the audience, well, this, this is blue magic. And how blue magic works is this. And blue magic can do different things than black magic. And the queen uses black magic and blah, blah, blah. It's just, but I'm reading scripts constantly that do that times to like be clear, 10. You're, and you're talking about it like a, a feature film. This is something yeah. you can't and that's do thing. in a feature film. You right? can do it you in do a it. novel. You can do it in a TV show. Right. You can do it in a comic. You can do it in a narrative podcast. But if you're telling a single feature film experience, you can't have... Like, I don't, I can't, I don't have a grimoire while I'm in the theater for your movie, you know? And so, um, so those are my big four. My, my recap is, uh, best practices for fantasy screenwriting in Jimmy George's opinion. Um, it's just my opinion (laughs) is. I agree with it. 
Big world, small geographical window. So two warring factions max that we're following. You can have seven warring factions, but the window just needs to be small enough that we're only following one versus the other. Two warring factions max, please. Big world, small cast window. Minimize your casts and eliminate those featured extras who have one line. No offense to anybody who is listening to this who is an extra for a living. (laughs) (laughs) I know you got to eat too. Uh, Big world, small small mythology window. Please don't make us need a bestiary to follow along with all your creatures. Four or five as magical creatures in your movie is enough. Uh, And then the last one, big world, small magic window. We don't have a grimoire. Minimize the magical objects and minimize the spells and try to keep it to one magic system for your movie. Just for your movie. If you can you can you fill can, the whiteboard yeah. with nine other magic systems, but just for the sake of a, a single cinematic experience, one magic system is enough for the audience to try to figure out what the hell how it is, how it works, you know? So you know that's my <laughs> listening to this wonderful breakdown, Jimmy, it occurs to me that while Willow fits everything you're saying, you know what another movie that we've not done, and one day I hope we do that fits kind of perfectly? Army of Darkness. Yeah. I Army, of Army of Darkness fits all lot. this stuff perfectly. <laughs> it really does. I couldn't help but think about it as you were talking. Yeah, so 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 I, I thanks for letting me do that little mini fantasy screenwriting lecture there and uh no it's good yeah. i mean if anything that's what's that's what what feels right about willow to me at least mm-hmm. because, all that stuff is simple as i said i'm the anti uh jamie no offense jamie but like i'm terrible at D <laughs> and all the details are why i hate it like, <laughs> like so like maybe that's one of the reasons i stick to this movie quite a bit it's because it kind of just pushes all that. Because you don't have to challenge your brain enough as much as the other stuff. My brain is more challenged by the themes. How's that? That's good. <laughs> than it is by the details and the numbers and the spells and stuff. I don't, I'm not one of those people that find that that interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, you're good. You're good, right? I, yeah. I, I, I gotta I'm assume good. you're I, done, right? I, Again. I mean, I said, I talked for like 25 minutes on that top. Yeah. So. That was great. <laughs> The, the, that, the next section that I wanted to talk about, I kind of like, I was trying to figure out the things that I didn't really particularly like about the middle mm-hmm. section of this movie. Okay. And it, it, it led me to a, to a thing that I've seen before, which is kind of the problems with like quest and road trip and golden fleece movies mm-hmm. in general, is that people set out into a world that they don't know and they have random encounters. And that's kind of the thing, right? It's kind of like, like the wizard of oz is almost an example of that mm-hmm. like she walks around and yes a tree talks and then a <laughs> scarecrow is there and then a, you know it's just all kind of random and you could shuffle it in almost any order talks. yeah as as far as things happen um and i think willow the one thing willow does i think it recognizes this problem and one of the ways you can fix that and i i thought this is one of the positives willow has in this in this regard was um by giving uh, superior knowledge of what the villain's up to, <laughs> you know? So yeah, if, yeah. You can, if you can show us the villain on the hunt, um, I think, and I think Lord of the Rings has a similar yes. fellowship. So so you have to do overtime work on showing us yeah. that this villain is going to show up and they yeah. are on the tail. So while they're having these random encounters, the villain's about to show up. Yeah, it's there's tension. Through. There's a ticking clock towards their collision for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. And because what happens is you end up in a lot of these golden fleece, and this is a movie and Lord of the Rings has similar, you end up with kind of these montage walking scenes, like, you know, they're walking up the mountain, they're walking on the trail. Um, and, uh, it, it, I think the one thing that stuck out in this movie is it takes a long time. It kind of gives you a fake out a little bit. And I do think mm-hmm. it's a, it's a very elegant fake out, right? So they make this big deal of gathering the team and you're going and, oh, and you're taking the jerk guy with you, the jerk mayor, <laughs> we're giving you the best warrior and we're doing all this stuff. And then they go out on an adventure and their adventure just consists of walking, walking, walking. Mm-hmm. And then they get to mad, mad Mardigan and they're like, all those people go home. They're like, yeah, eh. you know, <laughs> like it was like a waste of time almost in, in some ways, uh, it, like now, another movie might have had a couple adventures with those people before and Mad right. Mardigan might have been the midpoint. But the reality is they wanted Mad Mardigan to be the team. So they build the team right. after they give up on those there's other no, guys. There's no fire scene with the with just the no one. Yeah. You know what right. I mean? Like they no don't one. they, they yeah. don't be, they don't come together at all emotionally. Yeah. So yeah. So this was the area where I thought the movie gets a little clunky and uh and then on top of that, when he finally gives Man Mardigan the baby, two seconds later, oh, and the baby's kidnapped, and here he is, he's right <laughs> over my head. You know, and it's it's all all of that to me was kind of the clunky side of this movie, and it's all in that little section because then he needs to talk to Gladriel or whoever that woman is that talks to him and says, "Go to the place and do the thing," and that's really the break into two. So there's yeah. almost yes. all this like weird. But that happens really late into the movie. That's four. That's but, 40, 43 minutes, Jamie. Forty three minutes in a, in a I, simple movie, and not a Lord of the Rings movie. A simple movie. It's forty five minutes in. I'm not sure I can defend it completely from a writing standpoint, like you're saying, Jamie. Yeah. But I really love the fact that they leave the baby with Mad Mardigan. and then I, the very next scene, the baby's being carried by a bird <laughs> away. You know, like like that's how incompetent I, he is with something. It's, a bit, it's almost like a character moment that he's not even a present for. You know? I, and I a good I'm, joke, by the way. It's yeah, a good, joke. I, I it a good I, joke. I think I might like it better. But even when I was 16 year old, years old, I couldn't stand the brownies. I just couldn't stand them. I mean. You like I, Kevin Pollack? I, I, I can't believe that's Kevin Pollack doing that, by the way. But, yeah, the, the brownies are like. The one thing, if I could, if you could give me a version of this movie where you erase them, I, I would like the movie much better. I hope they're not in the new series. They are. They are. Oh no! <laughs> but, I, but, but not. But not th- I don't think they're they're on the whole journey. So they're okay. just like they're probably a stop. It's I, a callback. I, yeah, I was like, I was like, the one thing they must have realized was how bad this brownies thing is. <laughs> I like the brownies. I don't know. I think they're the Jar Jar Binks of Willow. I'll give you brownies. that. I'll give you um, that. So. Uh, anyway, so that doesn't it doesn't help that they're part of the kidnapping the baby because I'm like, no, I hate these characters. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, that, so I just these are some of the dangers. I think Willow really kind of needs a I, I mean, not to say it needs a fix, but I, I think that's the problem. Like I'm so much like, oh, they're just starting the journey. Nothing it's, happens. It meanders no a lot from the like, from the hero's perspective. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I like the whole idea of giving him the baby. But like two seconds after they said, let's not give him the baby, they're convinced to give him the baby. And it's just, <laughs> it, it gets a bit messy around that area. And I think it is a problem with quest movies in general. You really have to keep keep things moving forward. I don't know. This one, 
has a little bit of a circle and then it gets a new quest is what mm-hmm. happens. It shifts so, the goals. Yeah. It, so it shifts the goals too early or in it, or it doesn't give the goal too late. Like if it was almost more earlier in a debate section, it would, it could work. Uh, maybe if they didn't montage as much, maybe if they didn't make such a big deal of building the team. Yeah. On the first, they quest. really did. It's very ceremonial. It's very uh, ceremonial, and you like the characters. You're like, oh, I see. Oh, this gonna is going to be great. The yeah. jerk is going to be there, and the great Burgle warrior. Cut, is Burgle be there. Cut is a great character. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, and then they're like, nah, never mind. Forget <laughs> yeah. that. Forget that. It's almost like a false premise in that way. It's like they got um, some WKRP writer to write the thing. <laughs> no, I just. I wonder if it was also like you know they might not have wanted all the Nelwyn to be on the action yeah, side of yeah, things because yeah. Yeah. they didn't know what or he maybe he didn't know what to do with them or it was a production thing like yeah they maybe. didn't know what how to handle that back yeah then. I don't know back, I don't know I'm just that. guessing I'm guessing Jamie I don't know it's, yeah. it's it's weird especially when you consider there were seven drafts of those scripts yeah and, like, and it's, we've it's ta- we also yeah. talk about many, much on this show and with all the effects being like new to the era maybe they filmed some stuff right yeah, and it didn't work i'll say this as a as an avowed fan of it um it's weird that they build up uh funkars the fact that he's the best warrior in the village and mm-hmm. even before they get to mad martigan they don't fight anything yeah so like maybe they filmed a fight and they might have filmed work. something cut at it cut it, cut it yeah, yeah like, and like so these problems didn't exist on the page but then in the final edit that's what we're left with be. so we have to make these for these me those scenes only work emotional as a yeah that's really the reason i love those oh scenes. man it's, it's, it's the score and the, and there's beautiful shots before Peter jackson got there yeah this movie yep. did it yeah when i when i rewatched him i was like it they look so similar to the Peter Jackson shots. Yeah, it's and I'm beautiful. Like, you know, like, come must, on. Yeah. Yeah. Ron Howard yeah. did it first. Um, but anyway, that, <laughs> that was really the area where I thought, and even after that, it still gets a little weird because don't they randomly kind of run into the the wizard they're trying to find and stuff like that? It, <laughs> yeah. it gets, there, there's so many things that happen so easy for them that they really don't. Well, I think it's, the brownies lead them to that. No, the brownies where the do. Wizard the brownies is. do lead them there. Yeah, they yeah. randomly there run into Mad Martigan again. Mad Martigan again. Yeah. Randomly, it, yeah. It, it yeah. doesn't seem but, like there's a lot of trajectory on the decision making process from Willow. You know what I mean? Like, like well, it, Willow's it just kind seems of like a fraud. Keep, he's his. Yeah. The only thing about him is he's good of heart. He's not it's, really good at anything. You know. Yeah. It it all just seems like these scenes are just being dropped in by the writer said, so, Oh, we need the wizard to happen now. Or, Oh, we <laughs> need WKRP Cincinnati, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. That's, that's where I, it's that's a great where, show. <laughs> that's where this, I checked out just a little bit in this gotcha. rewatch. Gotcha. I had a hard gotcha. time. Yeah. Not sure. No, that's it. I mean, as far as coincidence goes though, I think the mad Martigan one might be the biggest or most egregious one where they meet him again when he's dressed as a woman. Right. Right. Like that's the biggest coincidence I can think of. In the but movie. doesn't that well? So so you know, there's the Pixar. We've the Pixar right, right. Rule, like coincidences that get you into trouble are okay. Coincidences that get you out of trouble are a cheat. Yep. Um, and I feel like it gets Willow into more trouble. Um, at first, right? Like, I mean, that's at first. That but you could argue yeah. that if they didn't have Mad Martigan along, then it w- they wouldn't have gotten out they of trouble in out the out long trouble. run. Yeah. So you're right. Maybe it like cancels itself out. Right? It doesn't like, bother me, but it's. I think that it, it's a bit. If easy. Jamie's pointing out good, and it's con- it's convenient, yeah. is what you're saying, right? Yeah. Jamie? It, it, 
It seems, I'll be honest, it's, it feels a little bit like lazy writing for seven gotcha. drafts. Uh, it yeah. feels like, <laughs> feels like, oh, I could, uh, who cares? Just, he's there. I'm imagining myself like after writing seven drafts, watching it be filmed and then realizing it like, oh, fuck. Ah, the- yeah. Seven drafts. Like, Sometimes you don't realize that you this wrote shit. Yeah. Just, no, absolutely. No, hey, you're so too. close to the story. You just I, don't right. even recognize. I, I've yeah. been there. Yeah. I've I got a been there. I've, I've <laughs> been rewriting like two years after the fact, like the last couple months and i rewrite and i read some of it that i wrote two years ago and went through several drafts and i'm like i let this go this (laughs) they just find the thing yeah Yeah. um okay the next thing we'll talk about is good news bad news um this is something we've talked about on other uh other episodes before most importantly uh jamie's favorite movie raiders of the lost ark and i think one of our best episodes is solo because we're the podcast that likes solo. That's love. <laughs> love. Yes. We're the podcast that uniformly loved solo. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's this like spiritual connection here because uh you got the Lawrence Kasdan and the mm-hmm. John Kasdan of those movies. And the Willow series exists because of John Kasdan and his love for this movie we're talking about. He is a diehard Willow fan. And so he made he he's the force that made Disney pretty much do it. <laughs> so. Plus Ron Howard. Plus Ron Howard, right. Um, Same director, so. Right. So I did something that usually Jimmy does, so forgive me if I don't do it as good as Jimmy, because <laughs> we, we know Jimmy's. You're the best I'm man. excited my, to hear Bob's <laughs> micro machines. Right. My, my micro machines, <laughs> right. So, I, uh, so the good news, bad news is how to write action, right, guys? Like, that's mm-hmm. the thing we usually do. And, like, if you think about any fight in indie, it's something good happens and something bad happens, something good happens, something mm-hmm. bad happens. It's to keep it interesting and exciting in how you write it, right? Because mm-hmm. writing action doesn't come natural to most people. I would have never thought of this kind of thing before doing the show, to be honest. That's awesome. Guys. Like, I would have never... I've watched those movies. I've watched every indie movie how many times that I would have never thought of this technique. So if you remember the horse cart chase in Willow, I tracked the whole horse cart chase for good news, bad news. Hell okay. yeah. <laughs> so uh, let me just put this here. Okay. Good news. Everyone made it onto the cart with varying degrees of difficulty. Bad news. <laughs> they're gaining on them and a soldier leaps onto the cart. Alora Dannon is closer to danger than ever. Good news. Mad Marnigan dodges an arrow, finds a weapon, and knocks the guy off. Bad news. There's still more soldiers on their tail, and another leaps on to fight Mad Marnigan. Good news. Mad Marnigan is still holding his own against the soldier. Bad news. The horse is pulling the cart or running, running wildly out of control. Good news. Willow realizes he's in a small, he's small enough to climb under the seat and grab the horse's reins. Bad news. The soldier now has Mad Marnigan by the neck, almost pushing him off the cart. Good news. Willow can almost see the horse's reins, just, but it's just past his arm's length. Uh, bad news. They are about to hit a giant fallen tree in the road at full speed. Good news. Rolling over the tree frees Mad Marnigan from the grasp of the soldier. Bad news. Both wooden wheels on the back of the cart have exploded on impact, and Willow is hanging on for dear life. Good news. Willow is now able to grab the reins, climb up onto the seat, and ensuring Laura Dannon is still safe. Bad news. The other soldier leaps onto the cart to attack Willow. Good news. Willow quickly finds a hammer, hits him in the balls, and a tree branch knocks the soldier off the cart. Bad news. The horses are still at full speed. The cart is 
tearing apart, and Mad Mardigan and the soldier are hanging off the back, sliding onto the ground. Willow falls and knocks himself out cold. Good news. The brownies, Jimmy, uh, Jamie's favorite, the brownies have a plan. They're going to start cutting the rope, holding the barrels in the back in place to let them loose. Bad news. Mad Mardigan is struggling to pull himself back up onto the cart. Good news. The brownies cut through the rope, freeing the barrel, which hits the soldier clean in the face, knocking him loose of the cart. Uh, <laughs> bad news. Uh, this isn't as easy as Jamie, Jimmy makes it look. Bad news. Another cart full of more soldiers starts starts chucking throwing stars at Mad Mardigan and is trying to hit him with a swing. And one of them is trying to hit him with a swinging mace. Good news. Willow regains consci consciousness, takes control of the horse reins, bringing the cart to a stop as the troops fly by them. Bad news. The troops make a U-turn and Mad Mardigan seemingly wants to play chicken with them head on. <laughs> Good news. Mad Mardigan swings the mace into the other cart, knocking out one soldier and forcing the entire cart to flip over. They are no longer being pursued. Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty intricate. Like you watch that, you watch that whole scene. And that, to me, like actually tracking that would have never happened in my brain. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it, it doesn't. But it, but like it's all it's all there on the page. And the cool thing about this one scene, which I really like, is there's almost three different action scenes happening simultaneously. Yes, there's Willow's story, there's Mad Martin's story, there's the Brownie story. The sorry, Jamie, the Brownies kind of have like a <laughs> through line in that, in that chase. I can't. It, it's there. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's actually a really complex scene, and that's why it's so exciting the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, like, you know, it's again staring at the blank page, right? You got right. a scene, yeah. and you know how the scene starts, you know how the scene ends, you don't know what happens in between. What do you do? At the, at its very basic, you could take a blank page, and it doesn't even have to be a genre. Like, it doesn't even have to be like a fantasy or a sci-fi or an action. We've tracked this with like a drama scene at a table. Like I bet you, if you did good news, bad news for when Harry met Sally at the diner scene, it, it would build to, it, you'd, to you'd probably be able to find that works pretty close to it. Right. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great way to, to like make the scenes constantly shifting and changing and interesting. When I, when I read and I, I've read novels and screenplays that um, from, from, you know, new writers and people, aspiring writers and the opposite of this, I see all the time. So it's like the wagon chase begins. The bad guys are closing in. Mad Martigan draws a sword, cuts a tree branch. It falls in front of the other wagon. The end. Good news, good news, good news. It's all good news. It's all good yep. news, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I can't tell you how many times, especially if you read like a John Wick kind of script or something. Mm -hmm. It's like John Wick walks in the room. Bang, bang, two people dead. He walks away. <laughs> And it's like, okay. that's it. And the um, same thing can be said if it's all bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. That's not emotionally satisfying. Uh, bad news, good news, bad news, worse news. That is, you know, if you want to go lean to the bad, you know. Um, I think, so. yeah, like uh, we pointed out the beginning chase of Solo was our was the one mm -hmm. you broke down. I always think of the um, tank chase in Last Crusade. That always, yeah, I love that one. That, mm. that always feels like this for the example of this to me that's what's yeah. used to it the most as a kid for whatever reason i rewatched as an aspiring wannabe filmmaker the tank chase in rate in uh, last crusade was probably the single piece of film i rewatched more than any other piece of film of anything wow. yeah just yeah, that yeah. one chase i would rewatch it over and over and over and over and over it's and got over. everything 
It I does. think I did the yeah. Death Star Trench, but we ran out of time on our Star Wars episode. But I think I did a good news, bad news for the Death Star tre- Trench in it. It's there. Good news, bad news technique. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say the master of this, in my opinion, is Spielberg. Yeah. But it's not like this is I think this it's is not exclusive thing. to him. It's, it's not exclusive to him. It's just for exciting scenes, interesting scenes. Yeah. For, yeah. for, be- for better or worse, because I've only really seen Tintin and snippets like that thing's full of it because it's animated. Oh, yeah. You, I, you I love Tintin, like, but and this, he goes and this, all this. out on that. Like, it, yeah, that, that, he like, milks those scenes for like every good news, bad news. He can <laughs> to, just if you want to see the one I'd recommend is the airplane scene in Tintin that right. has this in spades. Mm-hmm. It just it's great. I love it. So yeah, so there's if anytime I see a movie do anything like this, it makes me think of Spielberg. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes me think, oh, they're doing Spielberg, but I know it's not exclusive to him. Um, let's talk about dialogue for Willow. Yeah, Jamie, right? you brought this up. You brought this. Yeah, up. I, yeah. I wanted to bring this up. Uh, it's not necessarily a problem. It's funny that you know when this really came up. I turned the series on for a few minutes this morning before we got on, and I was like, oh, this dialogue's very modern is what struck mm-hmm. me i was like this is a very modern like as opposed to game of thrones or even that lord of the Rings series where they 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 have a couple tricks and i've always had a problem writing fantasy dialogue um not that i think i have a problem it's usually when i have co-writers we always disagree or when i have a producer involved we disagree i i'm somebody that leans towards the modern dialogue like because here's what i found i found that some some people i've written with or like, no, 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 you have to dive in deep to the thing. And then suddenly they're doing this fake Shakespeare thing that sounds yeah. really corny on the page. And I'm like, yeah, oh, no, it's alienating like too, to some yeah. degree. Yeah. Like, like I don't, I try to stay away from, um, from like hip slang or, or kind of phrases we're into that a lot of people say nowadays or things. I try to stay away from those. But honestly, I find like in, in TV shows like Willow, and I'm not saying this is even there. I bet they have some phrases that are totally modern, like you know that would totally come from our world. And you kind of are they like, say That's the word thing. weird in the show. I noticed that. Yeah. Um, yeah. They have the word weird, <laughs> but it's yeah. a fantasy. It doesn't yeah, matter. Vocabulary is. They, yeah. They're not on Earth, so there's no argument. It's, you know, it, it's kind of like the difference between like Xena <laughs> or something and Game <laughs> yeah, of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> they would do they would do something like that. But um, anyway, I was just. So I, I just, it just occurred to me that it might be something worth discussing. The only tips I really have to this is one, first of all, make your decision, like, like kind of almost like you do. Yeah, a tone, it's a tone scale. I was yeah. say, tone scale. It's a Batman tonal scale. Yeah. It's a tonal scale. Um, and, and, and figure out like, am I diving in deep to this kind of like yeah. medieval kind of speak or not? But even on top of that, after you decide your tone, if you're going to be modern or this or that, or, or maybe you're even going to kind of just, you know, say, screw it. I'm going totally modern and I'm using all kinds of phrases and it's a style mm-hmm. choice, you know, and if that's your choice, just just go in knowingly. So you match everybody up. Um, what, what Willow does, Willow is an interesting choice. I think the dialogue is relatively modern. It, you know, it doesn't for 1988 for 88. Yeah. Right. It doesn't yeah. cross any lines. But then, then the wizards kind of talk more like people out of like you know the olden days, mm-hmm. like like the it's bad... almost it's almost a class system. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. think that's that's like a good 
it's instructive, right? To, to keep in mind that right. it's instructive. Know. And the, the only other thing I'd say is I try to read it all out loud. And if I'm rolling my eyes at myself for something, <laughs> I wrote, then it's a bad problem. Um, one thing I, that stuck out to me, and I don't know if this is a good thing or bad. Did you watch the Lord of the Rings series or the power of the not. Rings? Yeah, I, did no, I did not. I did not. So one thing they did there, theirs is pretty much like the movies, you know, it's, it's kind of, that so it has a certain language that's fitting with the books but one thing i noticed there's a slightly more modern they constantly were throwing in little phrases like you know that would butter my biscuits or something and, you know some <laughs> weird kind of corny like dwarven <laughs> phrase like you know that's like the bottom rung of gold from the mine or something mm -hmm. or whatever they'd say and i it almost got to the point where i noticed it too much like uh, it was a little like, like every time I was like, oh, there's another one of those. And I kind of circle it mentally. There was like five of them in an episode. And I'm like, I'm like almost like that was their gimmick. It's like, this is the way, right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. No, and in, in this, it was like, they were trying to say, well, what's a version of something we say in modern times? But that they that, can say, right? That a dwarven miner would say in, in Middle Earth. Yeah, that's dialogue premise delivery, right? I, that's what I that is. It, yeah, I think it's an interesting approach. I mean, it was something I took away as something I might try in the future. I just want to hit people in the head with it like five times in an hour. Or something. <laughs> well, so you made me, when you asked this question, you made me think of two things. And that is, first off, like, uh, burgle cut, you, you, your troll dung is exactly what you're saying. Like, that is a premise-specific insult. Yeah. Yeah, you're an asshole. You're troll dung, right? That is a way to insult someone using the premise, putting premise paint on an insult so that we could only hear in this story world, right? Like that only sounds right when we're watching Willow. I'm sure troll dung is in other fantasy movies, but it's fitting. And it also made me think of Star Wars. You stuck up, half-witted, scruffy-looking, nerf herder. You know, that's another example of like that's vocabulary and phrases that are unique to the story world and not unique to us, right? Like we, what's well, a nerf herder, right? And how, it's how like, how do you call someone a jackass in Star Wars? Right. And those that, yeah. asking those questions when you're playing with the dialogue, that's another form of whiteboarding, right? You can just do that with like all the different types of dialogue that we see. Like, is there a way to paint it with your premise? And I think that's an example. But you know what else you made me think of? And it, it's interesting because it, it it speaks to the, the tonal discussion that you just met, mentioned is Guardians of the Galaxy. So the team, because I was thinking like, how could we how could we teach like fantasy in, instructing on fantasy dialogue? And, it, and it's really like comes down to like asking yourself, like, where are these people from? Like, what are the cultural elements that make this person who they are, their morals, their values, their interests, and how does that shape their vocabulary and their syntax? And we're not linguists, we're not going into linguistics, but those are the types of things you could think of, right? And like, so like Peter is an average earthling American dude who talks like an earthling because that's where he's from. So his modern vocabulary and style, his syntax, is motivated, right? Like right. It, when he's in these fantastic yeah. worlds, he can be our audience surrogate from a from a from a vocabulary standpoint in a way that feels right. It doesn't feel self-aware. It feels like this is like a dude on other planets around other aliens speaking from an American, you know, dude's 
context, right? Lens. Whereas like Gamora is like, she's regal, right? Like she's eloquent. She's intense. She's been embroiled in war her whole life. So she speaks very like hard, like you have the bearing of a man of honor. It's always like eloquent. It's always like, she she always says things like very terse and, and, um, and then you have Drax who says everything because of where he comes from and his people who says everything very literal to a comedic extreme. Uh, nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I will catch it. You know, like he speaks that way because that is like specific to where he comes from and how those people experience life. And then you have Groot who just says one sentence over and over again. Right. And it means all different things. And I don't know, Guardians of the Galaxy, I never really thought about how it's really instructive in the voices themselves and how they how they uh like make the world more feel more how they make that big big world small window like how they use that to a really unique way. So I don't know right. what's I don't know what the lesson is there. But I think that that is does a good job of what you're speaking to, Jamie. I think. Yeah. So if if you were to write the brownies, no, I'm just kidding. I don't want to. I'm not going to. <laughs> but it Another, was a good. Uh, it was a good thing. It it was really thought provoking. No, it is. I was like, what? Also, what uh, some another one to think about might be um, a Knight's Tale. Mm -hmm. Which yep. has it's not just even with the dialogue. That's a tonal thing, right? It's a tonal That's... thing with the music. Yeah, uh, which they're doing with Willow too. There's some modern music cues. Oh, in interesting! In the in the credits, so they're kind of leaning in that direction. But this doesn't take place on Earth, so it's different. They, they can do that, you know. It's an interesting topic. Very. Um, untrustworthy allies. All who's, right. So since we're, since we're leaning into new, this is my this is mine. Um, and I'll try to fly through this. I'm sorry. <laughs> um. The only time we talked about this, if anybody is, likes this topic and wants to hear it used in another movie, um, we talked about this on the Mission Impossible, is it six? Six episode? Fallout. 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 Mission Impossible Fallout. We talked about Untrustworthy Allies, and we haven't talked about it since. So I felt like that was one of the strengths of this movie to, to when Jamie pointed out there's a lot of meandering. I agree, but how they make up with for it, in my opinion, is there's a lot of tension created around Untrustworthy Allies. And um, and yeah, I was critiquing having too many alliances and warring factions creating like all this, but this does it in a way that's like really easy to follow. So uh, it, it like if you force your hero to be teamed up with a character who has been proven to us to be untrustworthy and mm -hmm. potentially a threat, it creates this ever present sense of tension that they're going to betray your character or that at least they're going to let him down. Right. So this movie does a great job of constantly forcing Willow to be teamed up with people who are untrustworthy allies. So it makes you feel like, oh, God, I hope they don't let him down. I hope they don't betray him. The whole time there's this underneath the surface. That's a question. That's a that's an outcome you're fearing. And that's writing. That's craft. Um, so first, Willow gets forced to team up with Burgle Cut. <laughs> <laughs> who is has been shown for the entire setup to be the biggest asshole and threat to Willow in his world, right? So like, and of course, Burglecut does let him down. He does, he abandons him, right? So our feared outcome there comes true. So that the fact that 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 we we fear he's gonna do that and he does, that makes every untrustworthy ally that comes next even more impactful. 
So, yeah, Jamie. <laughs> I'm, just I'm just kidding. So 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 then mm-hmm. Willow has to put his faith and trust in Mad Mardigan and ask him to take care of the baby. And what happens? Mad Mardigan lets him down. He has to put his faith in an untrustworthy ally, ally and Mad Mardigan lets him down. Another feared outcome that we have for Willow comes true. Then Willow is forced to team up with the Brownies, Frangine and Rule, who literally just tied him up and stole the baby. <laughs> so again, as he's going on this new quest with a new goal, and they're supposed to guide him, you're going, well, like the clock is ticking for them to either fuck up and let him down or for them to betray him. Right. So it creates this tension. And ultimately, like they stay loyal, but they, they do a few things along the way that make his quest harder because they are untrustworthy allies. Um, and they're not of as good heart as him. Um, then Willow is forced to put his faith in Mad Mardigan again. And eventually Mad Mardigan is captured and they, the bad guys come back with Mad Mardigan and capture the baby. So again, he's forced to put his trust in that guy and he lets him down again. Um, then uh, Willow and Mad Mardigan are forced to team up with Eric, the soldier, the leader of that army, who literally ignored their strife earlier in the movie, showed us he didn't care about either of them, and left, left Mad Mardigan for dead. So it's another untrustworthy ally. Um, and then Willow and Mad Mardigan are forced to team up with Sorsha at the castle. And there's this, like, she's the most, the, the one that is the most untrustworthy of the whole movie in that, like, she's been chasing the baby the whole time. So you're, the clock is ticking. You're like, is she going to betray them? Is she going to let them down? And she ultimately pr- doesn't and proves, and proves that she is, like, on their side. But it creates this tension through that whole climax. Like, is she going to turn back to bad? Is she going to hurt him? So I think this is just a great example of how they're constantly putting Willow, they're forcing him to put his trust in people who have been shown to be threats to Willow. With the, with the exception of Finn Rizal, like everyone seems untrusted. You're right. Everyone yes. seems untrustworthy. And so that You're creates right. this constant tension. So even in, while they're me- they might be meandering, they're right. not like super goal-driven at times. That tension is still there that this person's going to betray Willow or let him down or become some sort of escalated threat. And I think that's really instructive. I think this is a great tool to create internal antagonism when there isn't like an external antagonist on screen. Um, And uh, yeah, Mission Impossible does this a lot. Like Ethan Hunt is constantly forced to work with people who were previously another spy against him or were previously you know, on, on, on the opposite side of, of his mission. And, 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 and that leads to like every one of those missions being like, which one of these people is going to turn to the other side? You know, it creates this extra sense of tension and keeps us off balance. It's really, it's a really great writing technique. I'd also almost argue that, um, it's not so much will mad Mardigan betray him is that I was going to say the way mad Mardigan is set up is can mad Mardigan actually handle this stuff? (laughs) Because him just saying he's great. Isn't exactly convincing at the beginning. You know what I mean? Like the untrustworthiness is just, is he capable? Is he capable? Is he capable? That's a good way to put it too. Is that probably could go on the list of like, of the questions you want the audience to feel. That's a good point. Is he capable? Yes. Capable. Which at multiple times in the movie, he isn't, but in the second half he is. Yeah. Once again, bring it back to Ash. When it comes to fighting, totally capable. Everything yep. else in life, he's a complete fuck up. <laughs> you know, um, not so secret weapons. Oh, this, this is, is the this. last one, right? It's the last this one. Is it's the last point. Yeah, yeah. Look, like we've we've talked about this one a lot recently, but 
it's my favorite one since we've been tracking this and I just wanted to talk about it. So, um, um, Jamie, you want to hit it up a little bit and then I'll bounce off of you. Sure. It is. Yeah. So the not so secret weapon is this <clears throat> kind of notion that it's, it's, it's a specific setup and payoff. So you, you're setting something it's the up. Setup payoff. It's, it's yeah. the setup. It's the ultimate. It's the ch- true Chekhov's gun. If Chekhov's <laughs> gun is the thing that finally finishes off the bad guy. Um, so it, you, you set something up that seems um, innocuous or kind of forgotten in yes. the beginning of the of the thing. But then somehow that comes back to be the, the secret weapon that kind of wins the day or, yes. or really turns the tide in the final battle of the movie. Um, and some examples... Uh, some of them can just be ideas. They're not so much like physical weapons, though sometimes they can be physical weapons as well. So the loader and aliens uh, might be one crossing the streams and Ghostbusters use the force in uh, mm-hmm. Star Wars could be one mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And uh, the mud camouflage and predator. Yep. Um, dead and buried alt versus Doctor Strange in Spider-Man No Way Home is like an amazing one. No, you mean Multiverse of Madness. Multiverse, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Multiverse of one Madness. Of those sorry. Th- one of those Marvel yeah. ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of those 27 MCU right. movies or whatever it is. Um, the well camera in, in Nope. Um, yep. And uh, and the, recently the black phone, the phone itself is the night. He's there like, how are we going to defeat him? You're going to use a weapon. Not just any weapon, the not so secret weapon, the fucking black phone itself. Um, Can I guess so, what, the, what you're going to say? The one is here. Well, you know it. It's obvious. Go ahead, Bob. I don't, now I think I'm going to get it wrong. Um, it's the brownies. Not. It's the brownies. It's the it's all the brownies. Now I was going to say it's the pig the pig trick. Yes, it's the, it's the pig it's, trick, right? It's yep. the it's the disappearing, and he even says it's my old disappearing pig, pig trick. trick. Yeah. So I mean that you know, and and they did a great job. Uh, we have we haven't really like gotten down to exactly how to how to hide this yet but like they made it a joke just like they did in um in uh multiverse of madness like like we laughed at that when they're burying the thing right. and and the, and they, the idea yeah. is the setup make the setup a joke right and the, the right. setup yeah, is a joke serious. just like the ex just like when you bury exposition with a joke it works better like here like it was shown as like we saw in the setup, he performed this trick and it went really poorly and everyone laughed at him. And so it, it feels like a joke. Right. And then and he um, also messed it up. He didn't do it right. He didn't do it right. Right. So right. it doesn't feel like something's going to come back. But it's an amazing like, how do you beat a sorceress when you're not when you don't have when you're not a sorcerer? Like, it's also in the, in the moment in the scene, it's thematically just great because she's like ridiculing him for not having yeah. any magic. And then he defeats her with this trick. That's not magic. Yeah, no. And it's I, I magic. honestly think like I, as we've been doing this, so we've only started doing this about like 20 episodes in, I mean, sorry, like the last 20 episodes we started adding this in. And I really feel like it is a necessary ingredient to a cheeseburger. Like, I think it's part of the cheeseburger equation. Like, Jamie in the save the cat it's dig down deep remove the shard and use the not so secret weapon to achieve the goal it's Mm -hmm. it's it's like this extra little part it's like it's usually in that moment of growth and change where the person like overcomes their inner problems and then they're like I'm going to use the not so secret weapon now that I've overcome my internal problems and arced like Luke using the force right so um 
I, I think the what you just pointed out, Bob, is like the reason it works, right? Like it's the reason it feels like such a powerful moment because it's showing us, it's proving to us that he believes in himself where when we saw it before, he didn't believe in himself and he was a laughing stock. So, yeah. It's a great example of this and it's like one of my favorites. It's a great great on-screen way to show his confidence and how he's changed and everything. It's a great moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think that's everything. That's yeah. that's uh, that's our uh, our. This was epic. Thing. This was an epic episode. Yeah, this is <laughs> a whole episode where we're saying make your stuff less complicated. That was extremely complicated. Yeah. <laughs> this was Jimmy's hero's journey. Yeah, my hero's. Oh my god! How, you tell us how has Jimmy changed since the beginning? <laughs> yeah, how is he? How is he different? What was his not so secret weapon? Um, <laughs> my notes sheet. Yeah. Uh, did you guys, I know, as we always say, buy Jamie's books, Jimmy, mm-hmm. did, uh, you know, obviously if you need a script, uh, consulted on get the, Oh, get if the we're going to talk about that, I will say, so it is December 1st right now. I am, uh, filling up fast in 2023. I are, my next opening is 180 days away. Um, I'm very good problems. I'm very fortunate. Um, so my next opening is the third week of May, 2023, and this is December, 2022 when we're recording this. So, so uh, just a heads your, up, book your, yeah. book your segment there. For if, Jimmy. if you want a set of, if you want me, if you got a fantasy script and you want me to make a grimoire for it and you want me to make a piece, <laughs> I hope you're saying that it, right. I don't know if you're saying that right now. <laughs> everybody's everybody. It's probably Gamora rolling oh, their eyes. Like these fucking assholes. I think it's funny. Um, us mispronouncing <laughs> stuff is like a thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Jamie, Jamie with names. You got no. the grimoire. If you want a bestiary for your fantasy script that's 300 pages and has 100 speaking roles, send me your script. I'll do that for cool. you. Cool. Um, <laughs> also, like uh, I, I've said this before, uh, if you want to help me out, this has all been done. I've been doing this out of pocket forever. So if you want to help me out, patreon.com slash Bob Rose sucks. <laughs> and if I could just... I, if I could just name, I actually, because because of how stuff has been going, I actually have uh, one, two, three, four, five patrons right now. Hell yeah! And we're all, we're close to paying for Zoom almost monthly. Amazing. <laughs> we're close to paying for Zoom. If I could, I'm just going to awesome. say a thank you to Amanda Story, Mike Walls, Eric Smythe, David Crispino, and Eddie Hodges. They're all they've all been uh, listeners to most of my podcasts, but definitely writers blockbusters. So thank you so much to all of them. It just means a lot that they would even help me out here <laughs> so yeah. i appreciate it and to and, the, a whole bunch of people have, have have started leaving us reviews on apple yeah Podcasts. that's the next thing i was gonna say leave us yeah. a review on apple podcast if you can i can't believe how many we've accrued so far it's great yeah the right? new feed yeah. right writers blockbuster screenwriting podcast not thundergrunt because we're not, leaving Thundergrunt. Not, yeah. yeah we're leaving thundergrunt so please you know do it on the new feed <laughs> don't do it on that <laughs> and uh yeah and also we got thank and, you and i was gonna say the last thing today it's just a lot of, a lot of uh stuff uh, uh john DeCampos of ghost bat at underscore ghost underscore bat on instagram he made us our new show logo which is <laughs> i guess we're calling him scriptiana jones i don't know if that was <laughs> 
Jamie, if you want to say no, we'll listen. I mean, I, I, we can change it if you want. No, I, I, I tried to brainstorm a better name, and I couldn't, couldn't come up with it. it. <laughs> yeah, I, so, I definitely tried. But it's I not really, an, not really an announcement. It's just we got a new show logo for the new feed, and I really like it. And I love it. If Thank you, need, you, John. If, if you, yeah, if you're a fan of it, uh, look him up. He's for hire. He does great work. If you can't find him, let us know. Uh, we'll we'll, put, we'll send you to him. Yeah, he did the artwork for a comic book that I put they, out with. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, Burial Plots, and it's incredible work. Incredible yeah. work. Yeah, uh, I think that's everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. it sounds like it. All right. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. See yeah. ya. Bye bye. Hey, this is Bob Rose, and thank you for listening to Writer's Blockbusters. If you'd like to financially support the show, please consider joining my Patreon. I've been producing the podcast for several years completely out of pocket, and I'd like to keep producing it ad-free and no longer at a loss. If you'd like to help, head on over to patreon.com slash Bob Rose sucks. That's right. Bob Rose sucks. And if you want the one and only Jimmy George to help polish up that writing project you're kind of struggling with, head on over to scriptbutcher.com. As a listener, you already know he's the best there is. Scriptbutcher.com. You can also support the show by simply sharing it or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate both. Thank you for listening and see you next episode. <laughs>